You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 391. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 1A in the APG Headquarters building in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 13th of September, 2019. Today's episode, a mechanic charged with sabotage in Miami. Skydivers are almost run over by a flight of F-15s. More news, your feedback, and this week's plane tale, still waiting for help, still praying. So get all settled in, tray tables and seat backs in their upright locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 391 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast where we talk about aviation news and answer your fantastic feedback. Joining me from across the pond in a studio in the quaint English countryside, a doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. It is great to see you this evening. And yes, I am not at home. Um, came across the pond for a week or so to um, take part in a few events, which we'll catch up with uh, shortly, I think. But looking forward to a great show tonight. Excellent. We're looking forward to it as well. And sitting right next to Steph, also in a studio in the English countryside, professional photographer. Former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot. Former captain for an international airline based in London, Captain Nick. Well, hi there, Jeff. Yeah, I did phone immigration to try and let them know what was about to happen, but sadly, we don't have enough people to answer the phone nowadays, so there you go. She's here. Uh, And what a pleasure it is to uh, have one of my co-hosts right beside me. Brilliant. Awesome. And also joining us from this side of the pond, in his studio, near the Concord Covered Bridge, historic Concord Covered Bridge in Smyrna, Georgia, barbecue master, motorcycle rider, pontoon boat skipper, underwater photographer, and captain for a major U.S. legacy airline based in Atlanta, Captain Dana. Hey guys, great to be back. So excited for another fantastic APG episode. We weren't expecting you to be here this week, uh, Dana. Mm-hmm. You said you were going to be gone all week or something. Yes, I was. Okay. Now I'm here. All right. Well, we're so happy about that. I couldn't miss it. I just, I was just you getting just lonely. You just cut your sh- trip short just so that you could be back and be on the show. Just so I could be on the show. That's, that's dedication. Uh, the rest of you hosts, make note of that. I had nothing better to do. <laughs> well, I'm going to have to cut that out. <laughs> I'm really the only truth. kidding. The truth, the truth. The truth comes out. Yes. <laughs> okay, so what's going on, Steph? What, what, why are you in Nick Anderson's house? Uh, he invited me to stay 
So that was very kind of him. Okay. I appreciate it very much. Okay. Well, then I guess I should maybe back up a little bit more then. Why are you in the United Kingdom? Ah, good question. Yes. So here just on vacation, um, we actually, uh, Justice and I had planned to go to the Goodwood Revival this weekend, which is a vintage motorsports um, event. And not only vintage motorsports, but everyone kind of gets dressed up and plays the part as well, which is kind of fun. Uh, so before I came over, made a stop to my local vintage store, picked up a couple of dresses and accoutrement and um, been having kind of some fun with that uh, this week. So um, first day was today and it runs through Sunday. Um, it's about 35 minutes or so drive from Nick's place. So it was very kind of Nick to offer to let us stay here as a little bit of a home base. Yeah, Blackmail does come in handy, doesn't it? Yeah, we, we did turn the lights out and duck down behind the, you know, the bottom of the windows, but she had me sussed. As no, she's yeah, a very I've, smart I've, I've been here a time or two before and I know all. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't have the sign in the front where it said, go away, we're not home? I know where, I know where the spare key is, is yeah, that was stashed away in the garden. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think of all of us, uh, Steph, you have been uh, a a guest at the Anderson. At Shea um, Anderson, yeah. Yeah, many more times than anybody else. You hold yeah, the record. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she knows her way around the beer fridge now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, we yeah, all know that. It's <laughs> <laughs> first but thing we were checking beer. Yeah, yeah. It's, the beer's over there. Okay. Yeah. Um, but it's actually, it's, it's been a great week. Um, did a whole bunch of stuff. I had other um, commitments and things to do in Pennsylvania the uh, last weekend, actually. And so on our way to the UK, I stopped over in New York City, spent a night at uh, the JFK airport, not in the airport, but as you'll recall, they have this new swanky uh, hotel, which is all aircraft airport themed, um, the TWA hotel. And that was really, really uh, cool. Uh, we'll definitely have to figure out how to plan a meetup there at some point. Um, did it was kind of a last minute thing, so I did have a couple of our uh, friends of the program join me for for drinks, um, Dave Abbey and Tanya Wyman, and that was very nice of them to to come out and spend a little bit of time. It wasn't a big formal meetup, but we'll have to do that at at some point because. Do they join you poolside on the top of the hotel? Um, so the pool is an interesting thing. It's. Um, if you're not a hotel guest, there's quite a steep charge to use the pool. What if you're a guest pool, of a guest? So you can, I believe you can actually bring one guest, but then there's a charge for your second guest. Oh, okay. So, then, uh, so that's when you said to uh, Dave, sorry, Dave, Tanya and I are going to be up. <laughs> Tanya drinking and I are going to go to the, yeah. <laughs> actually, I did not realize this until the next day because otherwise it would have probably been worth the effort to try and get yeah. up there. But um, no, we had a good time in the, um, there's a couple different places where you can enjoy a beverage. The sunken lounge is uh, fun and retro-y and they've got the um, old flight boards all set up to to change and do different things. And then um, you can go out on the Constellation, the Connie, and it's all set up as a bar on the inside. Um, so we had a couple drinks out there, actually just a champagne toast, I think. Um, and a lot of other interesting things, just you can walk around. They've got little um, bits and pieces set up where you can see some of the history of TWA, the um, you know old uniforms, flight attendant stuff. And uh, Did you spot the twat fabric? It, not the fabric. So they printed it, but never actually turned it into okay. any of the uniforms. But there, there is actually a blurb about it um, in the little okay. flight museum area. Neat. Yeah, it's definitely there. Um, so I highly recommend it if you're spending the night, um, if you need to spend the night near the airport at JFK. Um, it's a great location if you're an AvGeek. Um, if you can get a room that overlooks uh, the ramp and the runway, that's awesome. Um, if you're there, you can go up to the pool and the bar up there. And it overlooks... Um, most of Terminal, oh gosh, five and 
three, four. Plenty of uh, Acme Red airplanes out there. Yeah, there was, it was like a E three forty six hundred convention while I was Wee. there. There were like three of them parked out there. Love them. May have I didn't been even four. Know you guys, I didn't even know there were. It's What's like that? a really super long international terminal. Four. Because that's four. Yeah. yeah. Four. Okay. Yeah. I was and trying then, to think because I know there's one number that's kind of. Then I think five trade. is no longer there. They, no, they, five is JetBlue. Oh, well, they renumbered them. Yeah, that's why I wasn't sure on the okay. numbering. Um, I should know because I flew into the one terminal um, on Acme, actually. Our beautiful and, Pan Am terminal was torn down a couple of years uh, ago. Well, that's, a, that's a bummer. I don't know. All I know is that um, I came in on an Acme regional flight, actually, and we parked all the way to the very end of the terminal. My bags arrived at the baggage claim well before I actually got there, and I was the second person off the plane. I didn't stop. They arrived the day a- before. <laughs> yeah. They really did. Well, they knew that uh, you just don't get enough exercise. Yeah. They wanted me to really run for those bags. So speaking of that, Um, uh, how, how was the run in uh, Erie? So that was just really a a training run for me. Um, Mm -hmm. It was actually a full on marathon that was happening and I did not run the full marathon because I've been dealing with some uh, minor injuries. So discussing with uh, the coach that I work with, decided just to do one lap of the two lap course and run it at, um, uh, at goal pace and more or less was able to do that through about 10 miles of the 13 miles, but pretty happy with that for, for what I've been hmm. dealing with and trying to do recently. So that was, that was a lot of fun. Good. Yeah. Okay. So now, uh, you caught us up, you were in New York and then you, uh, now we is ex- the reason why you stayed there is because you originally had planned to be there a little bit earlier in the UK, but there was some kind of an issue that prevented that. Mm, not entirely. So oh. we, we planned to, um, when we booked these trips, um, so Justice is not um, the greatest. He has, he has a really hard time sleeping on on airplanes, mm-hmm. especially for uh, overnight flights or long distances. I don't, fortunately, don't really have that problem. I can sleep pretty much anywhere. But I thought, well, this will be really nice. It's vacation. I'm going to book us a, a nice flight in business class with lie flat seats. And Justice's one request was, "Can we be on the airplane with the fewest number of people?" And I was like, "Uh, we're talking <laughs> like triple sevens and seven forty sevens here." So. Um, we actually decided to fly out of New York before I had actually looked at, at all of the details of different flights, just because there's a lot more options. So I was like, look, we could do a daytime flight if you want to. We could do an evening flight. Like, let's just, I'm going to be in Pennsylvania anyway. It's a nice place to meet up. We'll collect ourselves there, fly over to the UK. And then I went, oh, I know what we could do. Let me look into this. So British Airways has a flight on an A318 that is all business class. It's only 32 seats. And if you book it far enough in advance, it's usually not any more expensive oh, than a regular business that's, class. That's the replacement call sign for, for Concord. Concord, I know, yeah, which is really kind of... Very ugh. sad. Yeah, it's very, really sad. It's very similar. We've given it the same call sign, and now we have a 318 as opposed to the Concord flying it. Is that the one but that uh, goes right into London City? The London City. Ah, goes into yeah. London City. And then I was like, when, you know, we'll get to London City, and then we have a few days before the, the Goodwood Revival starts, so we could basically either stay in London, we could go someplace else in Europe, we could do anything from there. It's really easy to catch another flight uh, somewhere. Well, about two weeks before uh, our planned travel um, is when British Airways uh, uh, decided their pilots uh, union was going on strike. So, yeah, that unfortunately affected our outbound flight uh, was right in the middle of the strike days. So had to scramble a little bit. So it didn't quite work out the way I planned. We did end up down the back of a of a triple seven. But. It's okay. But just with a lot of other people. With a lot of other people. It was a full flight, yes. Uh-oh. And then we um we ended up going to Edinburgh for a few days to just sightsee and okay, the new. excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> <Bless> you. <laughs> did you did you eat haggis? Steph? Yes. 
Oh, we did. Well done. Yeah. Was it wrapped in a sheep's stomach? No, this was fried. Oh, fried haggis. It was actually was really it? good. It was it, good. It, it's actually very tasty. Yeah, I tasty. like haggis. Oh. Yeah. And we had haggis on, um, we had like a pulled pork sandwich, and you could have a haggis spread as one of the like condiments on it. Oh, okay. It was also good. Yeah. There you go. So it was lovely, beautiful city. I'd never been before. It was nice to walk around for a few days and take in some of the sights. Well, that pretty much uh, covers almost every. I mean, did you ever go back to work after we did the last uh, show? When did we do the last show? I don't know. I don't know what day it is. (laughs) Like Thursday or something? Last Thursday? Yeah. Last Uh, Thursday. I did. I went to work on Friday. Okay. Okay. Yeah. There you go. I will be back to work next week. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Excellent. Um, any more? Oh yeah, I did also go to Niagara Falls last weekend. Oh yeah, thanks Liz. Thanks Liz. What <laughs> 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 I really need to be doing is looking through all my photos that I've taken from the past. Uh, no, I had um, so I got to Erie, Pennsylvania on Saturday afternoon and had a few hours to kill, um, like six or seven, and I really didn't see any reason to stay in Erie since I wasn't really resting and preparing for a race per se. And I said, you know, I've never been to Niagara Falls. It's two hours away. I can get there before it's dark take a made of the mist tour. And then I was there. And I was like, you know, I really should wait until it's dark so I can see them lit up from the Canadian side. So I had my passport with me. So I just walked across the bridge, had dinner in Canada, saw the falls all lit up at night, which was beautiful. And then drove back to you. I've never seen them. That's another one of those things that I, I need yeah, to see. It was a, it was a list item, you know, like mm-hmm. I should go see Niagara Falls because Jeff, how easy would it for you to be to bid a long buffalo overnight? Oh, well, it's, I, on, it's only a no. 35, 40 minute drive. That goes a lot yeah, it's more not far from, Oh, no, I it's am. not that far from Buffalo. That goes a lot more senior, so Dana. Than well, I'm I talking about. Old. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> we, we've got a listener <laughs> Beautiful. from Buffalo. Don't we have a listener, Joe, from Buffalo? We do. We have a, a APG librarian named Tiffany. Librarian. Tiffany. Yeah, mm-hmm. right, lives right there. I'm sure she'd be willing to take you. There yeah. you go. Joe from no, Buffalo. Huh. Yeah, Joe from Buffalo. Sounds familiar. He, he's on Slack, B-U-F, so I assume yeah, that's that's Buffalo. Buffalo, yep. And uh, yeah. and we've I've seen uh, Joe a couple of times in Buffalo and, and Pittsburgh for Wings Over Pittsburgh back in... Excellent. 20- well, it's his suggestion uh, that has prompted tonight's plain tale. I know. Mm-hmm. I heard that. Isn't that amazing? Yes. Well, wow, you know what a quinkling. You're so clever. <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> not that clever. No, not that clever. Uh, anything else you want to tell us, Steph? I don't know. I feel like that's a lot of things. Okay. Well, if I'm you think of something. For, for things. I'm sure there's something that I've forgotten that yeah. I'm missing. And just, if you think of something, uh, just, you know, go ahead and fill us in. Will do. Okay. Uh, Nick, since you're right there next to Steph, we'll keep it over there on that camera. Uh, how have you been, sir, and what have you been up to? Uh, not a great deal. Uh, preparing for a lecture coming up, um, which I'm giving about the F-18 and the tornado. And that's a new lecture, so I've got to do about 30 or 40 slides. I'm uh, getting all photographs today uh, together. And very kindly, uh, Jeff Lee, a uh, big uh, shout-out for him. Uh, he has provided me a number of uh, fantastic uh, tornado uh, photographs. I didn't have very many, uh, and so that's helped a great deal. And um, I have plenty of F-18 uh, pictures. F-18 is very photogenic. The uh, You've got to really work hard to make the tornado look nice, but uh, there you go. Jeff managed. He's hey, do, do you know, ask him if he has any 141 pictures. <laughs> <laughs> I, I need some. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I had a, a lens with a big enough wide angle. Ah, but, shut uh, up. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um, so I've been uh, working hard on that lecture, 
and uh, doing this week's plain tale because uh, I was busy over the weekend and uh, didn't have a lot of time. And also a wonderful uh, shout out for Greg uh, Willits, who uh, very kindly has done uh, some audio work for me for tonight's plain tale. And it sounds brilliant and turns uh, a, a nice or a good story into a really poignant story. So brilliant. Thank you very much. Yeah, I thought when you asked me if I knew anybody with an American accent that uh, could do some dramatic reading, I thought, oh, I know just the guy. Is he a professional uh, voiceover he, um, or actor? He uh, was one of the ones that started the StarQuest production network. He and his wife, Jennifer, uh, along with Father Roderick back in, I don't know, 2005, 2006. That was how I got into podcasting through the StarQuest production network. And he was the CEO no, I, or the president of the uh, nonprofit and his wife, Jennifer, the CFO. Now my wife took over for Jennifer when she and Greg Willits left to uh, pursue radio and they were on uh, Sirius satellite uh, XM radio for a number of years doing a daily three hour uh, show on the, the Catholic channel in New York. And uh, so he's got a lot of experience in media and uh, he's been podcasting from the very beginning. It started in 2005, I believe, or maybe even 2004. He's one of the early ones. And so, yeah, he's got a lot of uh, a lot of history in uh, doing that sort of thing. Well, he's got a great voice, uh, particularly for what he did for tonight for me. So uh, if you're listening, Greg, thanks very much. I doubt he'll listen. I did send him the finished product, by the way, and oh, he was uh, he was very impressed with the uh, with your production, and he said it really it, it really made it so much more intense for him because he was just reading the diary entries, and when he heard it all put together in the actual end of the story, he said that gave him goosebumps. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, I couldn't have done it without him; it wouldn't have been ah, nearly as good. So, anyway. thanks, Greg. There you go. So, uh, yeah, folks, if, if you haven't picked up on it yet, please make sure that you listen to this week's uh, installment of The Plain Tales. It's, it's awesome, as they usually are, but this is extra especially awesome this week. Okay. Anything else, sir? Uh, bowling? Uh, lawn bowling is all over with now? Yeah, just about. I was due to play a match tomorrow, but I've uh, I've, I've pulled out of it so that I can be around uh, and entertain because we've got uh, Nev coming uh, oh. over uh, and uh, Matt Smith from uh, PT UK. Wow. Uh, and uh, with Steph and Justice here, we're going to have a little dinner. And um, uh, the only other thing is a reminder to anyone who uh, might be around Frankfurt next weekend, uh, the 21st, that uh, Jeff and I will be uh, over at the meetup at Frankfurt Airport uh, on Saturday and in the evening at a local hostelry uh, for, you know, a few beers. And uh, uh, we will be speaking our very best uh, German to all the locals uh, yeah. in practicing and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ich bin ein uh, Dummkopf and other <laughs> well-known yeah. phrases. Du bist ein Kopf, <laughs> um, So yeah. if, you're <laughs> if you end up going uh, to this event in Frankfurt and you're looking for me, just look on the floor somewhere. That's probably where I'll be. Yeah, fast asleep along with me. We'll probably be cuddled up together on the yeah. floor. Oh, oh that's, that's cute. <laughs> <laughs> So cute. Yeah. All right. Very good. I look forward to seeing you in person, Nick, next week. Certainly. Pleasure will be mine. Um, yes, it will. I should um, drop my trip and go. <laughs> Dana. Yes, you should. 
So what what have you been up to, sir? Fun and sun. Fun and sun. Okay. Yes. I went scuba diving. Yeah. As we mentioned earlier, uh, it sounded like, you know, you weren't going to be with us this week because you were going to be somewhere down in Mexico uh, in the clear blue waters off of uh, what, Cozumel? Yes, Cozumel. Some Mm -hmm. fantastic diving, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, Beautiful, uh, uh, surprisingly beautiful uh, condition of the reef. I was always a bit concerned whenever I go diving anywhere to see how healthy uh, the waters are and how healthy the fish life are and uh, and how healthy the coral life uh, is because it's really a telltale sign of the condition of the oceans. And so I was very, very pleased to find it in very, very good shape, um, very healthy and uh, clearly uh, being taken uh, very well care of by the uh, local authorities to make sure that uh, it's not damaged terribly by uh, divers. Uh, the briefings were very entailed as to what you can and cannot touch, which means you really just couldn't touch anything. Um, and uh, that's about it. But uh, there were a few things going on that I decided to cut it short and and uh, pay homage to the uh, the uh, the Mexican people and say sayonara. So um, wait, wait a minute. I don't think that's part of the Spanish Adios. language. There we go. That's it. Hasta luego. Hasta la vista, baby. <laughs> you, were, you were diving off the wa- in the Muchachos. waters off of Japan. Okay. Yeah. No, I'm, I was only kidding, by the way. I know. Uh, it got, got me, though. Yeah. Somebody's paying attention, at least. Yeah. We're listening to it. We're hanging on every word. Every word. So, yeah, it was, it was uh, the diving there was, uh, is, is always, as always, uh, excellent as far as for me goes as a P, a, I wouldn't say a professional underwater photographer, but a very uh, uh, in tuned and somewhat skilled underwater photographer. It's actually a very challenging environment for me. And that is, uh, I am uh, constantly moving because between Cozumel and the Yucatan Peninsula, or Playa del Carmen primarily, uh, is uh, it, it's a pretty active uh, uh, current there, uh, anywhere between between about a half knot to about two knots of current uh, constantly flowing, uh, which for an underwater photographer, Nick, and I'm sure uh, relate to this, you want your photography to be still. Uh, and, and I'm in a three, three-dimensional world, very much like flying an airplane, of course, you're in a three-dimensional world, and, and winds are always moving around, turbulence, and it's very much the same under the water. So for me to get really good photographs, I really need more of a still environment. It's very difficult to try to take photographs of something as you're trying to you're going past it at a, at a pretty good clip. So uh, I did and was able to get uh, roughly 450 photographs. I've gone through about half of them. And I did come up with some really, really cool photographs on this trip. I'm not sure um, how I'm going to post those. Or- yeah, yeah, you can share them if you want. You can upload them to the uh, to Evernote, uh, make a folder, and then we can link everybody to that in the show notes if you want people to see your photography. I'm not on Evernote anymore. Oh, okay. Well, you can send them to me and... Uh- a link to yeah. them somehow. Yeah, somehow. Okay. I'll figure, we'll, we'll talk offline. But anyways, okay. uh, so it was, uh, it was uh, you know, the diving itself was, was fantastic. So I enjoyed Good. that. Um, came home and uh, I thought you were doing the show. Yes, actually, the way the, the conversations are going, I actually did look at the Google calendar and saw there was no show. And I did see something else on there, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, and then I saw the traffic this morning and 
surprise, surprise, I was able to join the show excitedly, being that I flew back yesterday afternoon and was not able to be on the show. Um, so I saw that and I saw it in Google Calendar and I said, I will be here today. I rearranged my schedule that I had made. So here I am. Excellent. Excellent. And on the calendar, I happen to notice that Captain Jeff, I'm, I'm going to scoot it over to you. And that is that you had uh, some something going on this week that I'm curious to know about because I'm starting my preparations for that as well. I don't do too much prep work because it's pretty easy this year. Recurrent training is uh, depending on your airline and what the agreement is between your airline and the FAA or whatever the um, regulatory agency is, um, as far as the time frame is concerned. Um, now for us at Acme, it's every nine months. We uh, a new baby's born. Um, we have to uh, go into the box we call it the simulator and i know it sounds like an exciting thing to do yeah it is if your job doesn't depend on performing satisfactorily how, in it how, how how ironic that we have to go into the box every nine months oh yeah wow yeah. okay we'll leave that one just hang in there um but uh yeah so that was it was my turn in the uh, simulator um this week Again, I have to figure out what I'm doing wrong with my bidding for training because um, I ended up going on my early month and in D periods. <laughs> I would never bid for that, but apparently I have a bid in there that uh, was requesting that kind of thing. So Ouch. I need to find somebody that knows what they're doing with the PBS and the um, and training bidding because uh, I've, I've screwed it up, I think, now for about four or five years. <laughs> you know how to do I, it? I raise my hand because guess what? My I, I get B periods on, I think, on a Monday and See, Tuesday. See, that's what I know. I usually do. <laughs> I actually purposely go on the weekend and do like A or B periods, which is like when, when normal people are like alive and living and, you know, going about their day. But uh, the D period uh, briefing started at five o'clock. You get into the box about seven and then you're out, you know, like 10, 11 o'clock at night. And uh, I don't know. Uh, it's just too late for me. I'm used to the early, early morning kind of life. Anywho, um, did that on Wednesday and Thursday. And so just last night, uh, finished the second day of uh, training, which is basically your maneuvers validation, your check ride, I guess you could call it. And uh, everything went well. So I'm good for another nine months, unless I screw something up. <laughs> and how many does that leave left? I was doing the uh, I was doing the math while I was in the simulator building. Go, how many more of these do I have to do? And I have about what? Let's see, forty eight plus about three or four, so about uh, fifty two months left. And uh, every nine months, if I did the math correctly, it's like five point seven <laughs> recurrent trainings oh, left. Oh, that's still way too many. I uh, know. I was thinking, wow, you know, I probably don't have that probably many. It's going to be like three, maybe four at the most. But then probably throw in another full school between now and then, because I, I think my hopes for staying on this particular airplane are probably uh, not very realistic. Not good. But uh, anyway. Yeah, but you love seniority. Yeah. And if you decide that you don't want to... Uh, have to go through a full school. I could go to the seven seventeen and you do a six seven one seven. Yeah. Of course, there was something very interesting announced. Oh, what? Seven one seven. They're opening. It, it well. It was in the uh, um, AE information 
but they're looking at opening a Minneapolis base on that airplane. Yay. So that's I exciting. I think uh, Atlanta is going to be. You don't. I don't, be I don't get it. That just seems like they're shrinking Atlanta. But anyways, yeah. So want to be in Minneapolis. I know. No, no offense to all of you up there living in the Great White North, but it ain't for me. Thank yeah, you very much. Either as well. So, but yeah. Um, well, we'll see. We'll see what happens. There's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, variability, and uh, you know, it's a very dynamic situation, as we like to say. Between now and then, and if it if it just becomes too overwhelming for me, I'll just retire, like Nick did. Well, hey, just give up. Yeah, just say forget <laughs> it. I'm yeah, not putting I up with this really crap. Anymore. I did indeed give up. <laughs> well, you didn't give way. up. What, that's not what I mean. I mean, it's like, I don't need Quit. to stay until 65. I can leave before then, right? You can yeah, if you decide to. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And I know a lot of people would be very happy if I did. <laughs> well, the ones right there. community would, and that's truthful because yeah. you'd be just putting out all those crew logs and doing extra things for the show and lots of meetups and sleeping. I I re- I remember back in 2001 when they announced at the company that the MD88 would be retired by 2005 I think it was yep. maybe 2006 I do too and I'm now straight ahead to 2019 so that's what 14 years past yeah, give or take so I'm thinking I'm going to retire off the MD. <laughs> you may MD-90. just do that, and I may just yeah. do that. <laughs> well, the guy, my instructor uh, for the uh, for for last night's uh, session, the guy that gave me the check ride, um, he flew the DC nine, and he was there during the entire DC nine fleet retirement. And uh, yeah, he said it didn't go quite as quickly as they thought, and uh, he said it would not be surprised. And, you know, he's he's got some skin in the game as well because he's a MD-88, MD-90 instructor. Um, and if uh, if it goes away, then if he wants to hang around and continue to instruct on it, he's going to have to switch to something else. He's a, uh, uh, what do they call that, um, ACME ground services. He's like, it's a not ACME Airlines specifically, a kind of a third-party contracting service that uh, a lot of the pilots that retire um, end up, uh, coming back and being uh, instructors in the simulator and uh, a lot of experience. And spe- speaking of experience, we were talking after the uh, the ride last night, um, and I, I was mentioning we I was in uh, MD ninety uh, one. I think we only have one MD ninety sim now, right? I think that's correct. We only and, have one. we've always only had one. Oh, really? Okay, I thought yes. we had more. But anyway, this nope. thing is a piece of hmm, as far as the uh, the lateral. Um, uh, the aileron banking of the airplane is very unusually sensitive, not anything like the real airplane. I mean, the simulator is always kind of a little weird as far as the way the controls uh, feel. But, uh, and I was mentioning, I said, you know, I wish that there was a way for me to bid specific simulators because I would have loved to have uh, been in simulator 88-4, which is, I think, if you ask anybody who's been around for a while, that's definitely the best simulator that we have. It is the most like the real airplane, and it's not so sensitive on the controls, especially the banking. And he goes, oh, yeah, I mean, right out the door over there, you know, like he's pointing behind me. And I go, yeah. And he said, that was the simulator that we used when Denzel Washington was in town to learn how to look and act like a pilot in the movie Flight. If you all remember that 
film. It wasn't too long ago, something between five and 10 years ago, I believe. Yeah. And he may uh, have looked like a pilot, but he really didn't act like well, a real pilot. Yeah, that's true. Pilots. That was kind of the story is that he uh, was uh, <laughs> an alcoholic and on drugs and everything else. So, um, and you'll remember the airplane in, that was featured in that movie um, looked a lot like uh, a mad dog, except not quite. They they did some computer generated uh, imagery to make it look a little bit different. And uh, it did some things that weren't really realistic at all. But I think a lot of us just went, well, yeah, it wasn't really close to reality, but uh, it was that wasn't the point of the the movie. The the point of the movie was about his addiction and, and coming back from it and becoming whole again. So uh, anyway, uh, this instructor was his instructor. Um, and so Larry Goodrich, the uh, instructor pilot, uh, was uh, had, I think he said, like three simula- simulator sessions with uh, Denzel and uh, the guy that played his co-pilot. He was also on set over at... Uh, uh, Fulton County, uh, Charlie Brown, uh, that's where they flew an airplane over there to get some of the outdoor scenes. And uh, he was a big part of the, uh, he was kind of the, what would you call it, the uh, representative of Acme and trying to, uh, you know, get Denzel and the uh, other actor, you know, acting like um, pilots and doing certain things, you know, kind of a, what, technical Technical advisor. Advisor. There we go. That, that was a word I was looking for. Thank you, Steph. You're welcome. Yeah. So I thought that was pretty cool. He says, yeah, my name are, is in the credits. I went, oh, that's pretty wow. neat. Yeah. Completely but, unrelated. But we were, when we were in uh, Edinburgh, they were filming the Fast and Furious 9, but there were nine? no Vin Diesel sightings, <laughs> wow. unfortunately by us. Yes. But they kept closing off various streets and blocking things off. So. What, anyway, which number was that, uh, that the guy died, the, one of the stars died? Yeah. yeah I well, don't he didn't remember. do it actually in the movie, but it, between yeah. the movies or something? Between. I don't remember. Yeah. Like yeah. six or something. So, so there were no yeah. cars. They were all what, CG cars? There were some cars, oh, okay. but uh, we couldn't really get close enough to see much oh, of anything. Okay. They were just closing off streets where we wanted to walk down. <laughs> Frustrating. You know, they close off a block and then to get to the other side of the block, you had to like go down this hill around the corner up like 40 flights of stairs. And I mean, they'd have to close off the blocks pretty quick, wouldn't they? Because these cars go quite fast. So mm. presumably the blokes were like, going, close it off now, quick, right there they come. <laughs> Movie <laughs> magic that? is involved. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what, what accent was that exactly? <laughs> I have no idea. I think that was just Nick's accent. <laughs> it was a good anyway, one, though. I liked it. It's just a random aside. Yeah. Um, you know what? I was just thinking about something, Nick. Um, you you had kind of went over or went over, went over, covered uh, what you were doing the last um, few days between the last episode and today's episode. And I think you neglected to mention something. And it has uh, something well, to do considering with considering the state of my memory. I'm not surprised. Yeah, I believe. Uh, let me see if I can um, juggle your brain a little bit. The 9th of September. Mm, that's the ninth day of the ninth month. Yes, it's. Uh, yeah. It's, uh, uh, that's, your birthday. That was about four days. It was ago. your birthday. Was it? Yes. Okay. That's when you turned 65. And I'm we have not to remember these. We things. have some audio <laughs> feedback that uh, I'd like to play, if you don't mind. Ah. Here we go. How many times have you been asked, what's your favorite airplane? I get asked it a lot, all the time. What's my answer? Many of you know it or can guess it already. 
the PBY Catalina. No, that's not it. That's one of my favorites, no doubt. But so is the DC-3, the B-17, the A-10, and the P-38. But really, my favorite is the F-4U Corsair. Fooled you again? That's not it either. It's the DC-8. Okay, okay. Let me be honest. Really, it's a Dornier DOX flying boat. Nope. Wow, you're easy to fool. And I could go on and on. I have no favorite. No, that's not true either. They're all my favorites. I have the same problem with food, which is part of the reason why I look the way I do. But you know, that's not the case with actors. I mean, I do have a few favorite actors, some modern day, some from long ago. Many you're probably not familiar with, including my very favorite. My guess is that most of you never heard of Victor McLaughlin. Born in 1886, Victor McLaughlin joined the Royal Army in 1900 and was stationed in the lifeguards at Windsor Castle until he was thrown out for only being 14. Later, he worked as a wrestler and heavyweight boxer. He even fought against the legendary Jack Johnson. At six foot three inches tall, Victor McLaughlin was a big guy, especially for back in the early 20th century. He was so big and so tough that he took a boxing job with a circus where they offered $25 to anyone who could go three rounds with him. After that, he re-upped for World War I and in 1918, he took the heavyweight championship for the British Army. Victor McLaughlin got into the film industry early on. Some of his many famous co-stars included Boris Karloff, Alan Hale, Ward Bond, Shirley Temple, Hank Warden, Harry Carey Jr., and Freddie Bartholomew. In 1935, he won the Academy Award for Best Actor in the John Ford film, The Informer. In 1952, he was again nominated, this time for Best Supporting Actor in The Quiet Man. My favorite film of his, though, has got to be the 1939 adventure Gunga Din, where he shared the bill with Cary Grant and Douglas Fairbanks Jr., playing the role of Sergeant McChesney. But he's probably best known as a character actor in John Ford's Cavalry Trilogy, Ford Apache, She Wore Yellow Ribbon, and Rio Grande, always playing a sergeant under the command of John Wayne. There are so many scenes that come to mind when I think of Victor McLaughlin. Two are particularly special to me, though. The first is in Gunga Din, where in response to a line from Douglas Fairbanks Jr., he silently grins. But it's not just any grin. The corners of his mouth slowly turn upward. Little by little, his lips move to a smile. Eventually, his mouth gently widens and his teeth become visible, and his eyes light up for the camera. When watching that scene, you can't help but smile. The other scene I think of comes from She Wore Yellow Ribbon, in the role as Top Sergeant Quincannon. When another sergeant says to Victor McLaughlin, You're out of uniform, Quincannon, the obviously intoxicated Top Sergeant replies, Oh, am I? Well, I'm in the proper uniform, the uniform of a retired gentleman. So why am I telling you about Victor McLaughlin? Well, he sort of reminds me of someone we all know. As I said earlier, Victor McLaughlin was a big, strapping man, a tough guy who could take care of himself. He had a sense of duty to his country and certainly enjoyed a drink or two. He wasn't afraid to show his sensitive side. He had a warm heart and a big grin of a smile that could light up a whole room. Now the man he reminds me of doesn't really look like Victor McLaughlin, although I think they're about the same height. This man now wears the proper uniform of a retired gentleman and I hope he's grinning that great big room-brightening smile of his when he hears this. 
So from here in Portland, Maine, happy birthday, Captain Nick. From your main man, Micah. Wasn't that nice? Well, it certainly was. Uh, and thank you very much indeed, Micah. And it would indeed have been the day I would have been forced to retire. Uh, as it was, I pulled the plug a little early. But uh, I, actually, I've seen all those movies. And uh, I remember him well, that actor. Uh, as I recall, he played a drunken Irishman. So uh, uh, I'm not quite sure exactly where the likeness is. but oh, I can see it. <laughs> <laughs> Very clearly. Hmm. Okay. Maybe not the Irishman part of it, but the drunken part. Yeah, the drunken part, yeah. <laughs> now, if you look at these pictures, and I think I do see a little bit of resemblance between Captain Nick and Victor McLaughlin. Let me get that photo back up. I think you've got an overactive imagination. Okay, never mind. <laughs> of course, well, you're I'm much gonna... better looking than he is, right? I don't think so. I'm not in Hollywood. or wasn't in Hollywood. Well, you don't have to be good looking to be in Hollywood. Ah, very true. No. Otherwise, John Wayne would never have got there. <laughs> anyway, so thank you, Micah, for uh, for sending that in to commemorate Captain Yeah, Nick's very birthday. kind of you, Micah. You always do marvelous jobs with those things. They're fantastic. Yeah. Okay, uh, some more administrative uh, issues here. I'm going to play a little bit of feedback and then talk briefly about the subject that Ahmad brings up. Hello, APG crew. It's Ahmad Danhamidu from Abuja, Nigeria. I was just going through the Google Play Store, and I noticed that the APG app is no longer there. Or is it still there? I also checked on the APG website, and I didn't see any links to it. What I did see was a link to Google Podcasts and something else similar to that. Is the app still out there or has it been replaced? Thank you. Well, that was news to me. <laughs> I went, wait a minute, what? I still have it on my Android device. I have one token Android device just to see how the uh, app functions on it. And it's still on there, but, but that's because I downloaded it from the uh, Google Play Store before I guess it was removed. So, you know, if you've been listening to the show for a while, you know that we have Android and, well, we used to have an Android <laughs> um, app, and we still have an iOS app, and uh, there have been things going on behind the scenes. Uh, the guy that uh, came up with the whole thing for us, set it up, um, kind of, you know, handed it over to us, and I don't have all the required credentials that... Um, this man has, and uh, it's just kind of a mess. And it's uh, we're just kind of what, what do they say, cobbling it together and trying to hold it together with uh, with uh, dental floss and uh, speed tape, and uh, it's it's just not working that well. So um, we're looking at uh, different options. Uh, one could be trying to come up with the proper credentials necessary to keep this thing um, fully under my control with the uh, company that we're using to uh, do the apps. Uh, that's one option. Another option is the company that we use to, um, to uh, uh, what we call it, serve the files. The uh, company is called Liberated Syndication. All these uh, audio files are, are stored on this big um, server. This company is set up specifically to do that. And they do have um, apps for iOS and Android and not quite as fully functioned as what we have now, but uh, it, it still does the app trick. And the third option would be just to say, you know what? Doing the app thing was fun, but uh, we don't need to do that anymore. Um, in fact, 
I think that our website is, what do they call that? Adaptable or whatever. That was, you can look at it on a, a tablet device, a phone device or whatever, and it kind of adapts to, um, I don't know if that's the exact technical term for it, but uh, it works just fine. It functions just fine on any kind of device. Uh, I know it's not the same as having a dedicated app, but that might be what we do. So we're, we're looking into this, uh, trying to decide uh, how to go forward with it. The uh, Having an app is not cheap, by the way. It, uh, a lot of the money that you all send to us uh, for the coffee fund goes toward things like paying for uh, the yearly fee for doing the apps and that kind of thing. So, um, so that is what I wanted to say about that. So Ahmad, uh, you're not losing your mind. No, it's no, no longer on the app store, but if you have it on another device, I don't know if you can move it from one to another, but if you had it to begin with, it still should be on your phone. I don't know why it wouldn't be, but that's all. Yeah, in the app store, but that's probably because I've got it on my iPad. No, oh, it was just Android. It, yeah, just I, Android, I'm, correct? Yeah, Android. Or, oh, just Android. Okay. Right. Yeah, yeah the so iOS, iOS is still okay. on the iOS store. Yes. Yeah, it's still on the app store. Yes. Yeah, but we're talking Android here. Okay. And I looked on a. I have a, a Samsung tab um, tablet. And uh, looked for it on the App Store, and it was I couldn't find it, so it's it went bye bye. Anyway, so as I said, we're we're working on that. We we'll hope hopefully come up with a good solution. If you're out there, a listener who knows a lot about these apps and can help us out with that, uh, please send an email to me, Jeff at airlinepilotguy.com, and uh, we'll we'll see what we can do. Okay, and uh, just wanted to mention our good friend Sue. Uh, Comanche Sue, right? Is that what she goes Correct. by? Okay. Uh, she says, Dear APG crew, with heartfelt thanks, I'm making my first contribution to the coffee fund. It was a nice contribution. I've taken your comments that I shouldn't contribute while doing flight training, literally, but that's all changed. I've received my first official paycheck from my first official CFI. Job. Hey, well Yay. done. Congratulations, Sue. Fantastic. Awesome. Awesome news. She says, flying is not my primary vocation, but it is my true passion, my avocation. I'm grateful to you all for the many enjoyable hours of listening, learning, and encouragement along my way. And I'm proud to be part of the APG community. Your friend in flying, Comanche Sue. It's right there, Comanche Sue. Yeah, so um, she's been a, a big part of our APG community for a number of years, and it was so nice to see her again uh, at Oshkosh this year. Yeah, that so. was the first time I met Sue. That was very nice. The first yeah, time I met her was two years before when I made that quick visit to uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Oshkosh. Sure. Yeah. The first time I met her as well. Yep. Yeah. Well so deserved. She is, uh, she's just a, uh, a wonderful person. So thank you, Sue, and thank you for the really nice contribution to our coffee fund. We do appreciate that. And speaking of Coffee Fund, unless there's something I've missed, I think we covered everything there. Why don't we do some singing? Johnny, how much more coffee? Sure thing. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community coffee and tea and the java and me a cup a cup a cup a cup a cup okay the coffee fund is set up specifically so that you if you have the financial resources to do so 
contribute to our cause, the Airline Pilot Guy Show. And and I really mean that. And Sue took us literally, as she said in her note. Uh, she was uh, spending money on flight training. Didn't have money to spend on this thing, but uh, now she does. So thank you, Sue. Uh, if you want to become part of the Coffee Fund Cadre, you can do it a couple different ways. We have the Classic Fund, which is a or Classic Method, which is a way to do like a one-time contribution or a recurring uh, contribution. And since the last episode, Sue and George Leslie, uh, he does a recurring payment via the Coffee Fund Classic Method. The other way to do it is to become a patron of the show via patreon.com. And since the last episode, we have Kirsten Norris and John Feldman, who has been a patron since 2016. He bumped up his contribution 150%. So thank you, John, for that. And if you want to learn more about it, head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. And we will too. Stand by for news. This from BBC.com. Magistrates in France have dropped charges against Air France and Airbus over a mid-Atlantic plane crash in 2009 that killed all 228 people on board. The Airbus A330 was flying from Rio de Janeiro to Paris. It stalled in a storm and plunged into the sea. On Thursday, the magistrates looking into manslaughter charges brought by victims' relatives decided that there were not enough grounds to prosecute. They blamed the plane's crew for losing control after speed sensors froze. The main association of victims' families called the magistrate's decision an insult to the memory of the victims and announced plans to appeal. Air France, uh, let's see. Um, in 2012, a civil investigation found a combination of technical failure and human error had led to the loss of Flight 447 on the 1st of June 2009. Investigator in charge Alain Boulard said the crew had almost lost complete control of the situation. The report by the French Aviation Authority highlighted faults with the Airbus 330's airspeed sensors, which confused the pilots, but it also pointed to inappropriate action by the pilots. One of the mistakes of the crew was to point the nose of the aircraft upwards after it stalled instead of pointing it down. And we all know basic aerodynamics in flying that uh, if you're in a stall, you don't pull, point the uh, nose of the airplane up. <laughs> you point it down, or at least unload the wings. Anyway, the uh, that accident was the worst disaster in the history of Air France. So, what do you think about that? Um, saying they don't think they have enough evidence that uh, anybody is liable. Well, if the... So, what did it say here? The... Oh, I have to go back to the right spot where it talked about the civil investigation found that it was a combination of technical failure and human error. So mm -hmm. certainly there is that human error component to it. But um, yeah, I, I, I guess they were saying that doesn't I guess really... they're saying against Air France in general and Airbus. So not even the, the human error part of it, but the. Uh... So 
technical failings part. If I understand this correctly, um, so in a civil um, lawsuit, the um, plaintiffs won, uh, but in the manslaughter charges, which would be a criminal lawsuit, right? So maybe they thought that it didn't rise to the criminal level. Is that, or am I reading? I don't know how that works in in, in France. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, yeah, I, I, I don't know if they found there wasn't enough, if they didn't have enough to go on to say that it would be, it depends on what their definition of manslaughter is in, in right. France, I suppose, and how they're defining that. So, Certainly yeah. in the UK, there is a much higher uh, level of proof required uh, yep. for a criminal uh, prosecution. So uh, yeah, I, I think that's probably uh, the requirement uh, in that, you know, they uh, they couldn't settle on uh, enough blame that could be allocated to the pilots. Yeah, I think it's the same deal here in the U.S., Nick. Uh, the It's a much higher uh, level of, what would you call it, um, certainty that uh, something, uh, somebody Burden was guilty. Burden of proof. Burden or... of proof. Hey, that's a, they should probably use that term. They probably should. Yeah. Oh, I, I think they, they do. Probably do. Okay, well, hey. Uh, speaking of burden of proof and and uh, charges leveled against a person, this was an interesting one. Um, American Airlines. Let's see what uh, was this from? A couple different sources I have here. Um, Miami Herald. American Airlines mechanic appeared in federal court Friday on a sabotage charge, accusing him of disabling a navigation system. And I put in parentheses, huh? <laughs> I don't think it was in a navigation system. Anyway, on a flight with 150 people aboard before it was scheduled to take off from Miami International Airport earlier this summer. The reason, according to the criminal complaint filed in a Miami federal court, Abdul Majid Marouf Ahmed Alani, a veteran employee, was upset over stalled union contract negotiations. It had nothing to do with terrorism. This is a supposedly union contract stuff. Um, none of the passengers and crew on the flight to Nassau were injured because his tampering with the so-called air data module. That's what it is. Actually. <laughs> I love these journalists. First, they call it a navigation system. And then when they use the actual device that was tampered with the air data module, they go so-called. <laughs> but the real question is what, uh, what aircraft picture did they use to go with the story here? You know, I, um, I deleted the picture of the airplane, <laughs> so I'm not sure which which one they used. I'm sure it was exactly the right airplane. Yes, you know because they anyway. always do. Uh, so here's the deal. I I, I thought you know I'm going to switch from Miami Herald to something that has a little bit more accurate data, like Aviation Safety Network. And uh, the narrative here, aircraft operating as American Airlines Flight 2834 received multiple warnings concerning one of the air data computers just before takeoff, not aborting the takeoff as the Miami Herald mentioned, but it, they weren't in the takeoff phase yet. They were taxiing out. Of course, we all know that any surface that an airplane is resting upon is a runway and any movement it's by the, the airplane. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, they call it a runway, too, even though oh, yeah. on a taxiway. And then any kind of uh, movement of the airplane is, is takeoff. But yes. that's not really true. Anyway, just before takeoff, flight the flight returned to the parking position. Investigations revealed that a piece of foam was glued into one of the air data computers uh, feed lines, generating false data to the flight instruments. This piece of foam was intentionally inserted by a mechanic 
who tried by technically delaying the flight to generate overtime for financial reasons. So he's thinking, hmm, what can I do uh, to make the airplane come back and require maintenance? And, oh, I'll be here and I'll get extra money for doing this extra maintenance on this airplane that I basically And I'll just happen sabotaged. to know what the problem is and be able to yeah, fix well, it eventually, where probably. Where that come yeah. from? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, let's see. I guess they had some video of him walking up to the airplane and about seven minutes worth of fooling around in the uh, E&E compartment. Um, and then uh, the problem was rectified because he took the piece of foam uh, out of the, or actually that was when he was putting the video was of him doing something. And that was when they surmised that he placed the piece of foam in the line. And so it's, from what I'm gathering, this sounds to me like a, a pedostatic line that feeds into the air data computer system and it was blocked and they probably didn't notice it until after they started the other engine, second engine doing some checks, probably got some ECAM messages. I think it was an Airbus. Uh, does it say here? Um, you know, it did mm. in one of my articles. I just don't, uh, or maybe it was a seven, three. Well, it doesn't matter. It was it's a picture of seven, five on the, in the Miami Herald. Close. Yeah, well, I'm sure that that's correct then. Yeah, no. Yeah, we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely an A380. Oh, yeah. Or, yeah. American doesn't Or it this. could be a Antonov 124. <laughs> it could be, yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. <laughs> a jumbo jet. Yeah, jumbo. A jumbo or a super jumbo jet. No, flying I don't think so. from Flying from Miami yeah. to yeah. It w- Asshole. Yeah, I don't think so. It was some kind of a narrow body. And uh, I just don't recall exactly what uh, model it was. But anyway, um, yeah, uh, that's not smart because just think if for whatever reason they didn't notice the issue before they took off. And then now they're in a situation where they're in the air and they have unreliable airspeed and bad indications. And now we're getting close to the uh, scenario that we've, you know, heard about um, regarding the the Max, although that's a little bit different because that's a system that uh, is separate from the air data computer system. But you get the idea. This is not a very smart thing to do, just to try to get a little extra money and a little extra uh, overtime work. No, it's terrible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely ridiculous. Uh, what on earth was he thinking? These guys are he supposed wasn't. to have some sort of education in um, air, aircraft safety. Uh, he was uh, probably thinking at the time. It sounded. It seemed like a good idea. Didn't yeah. think it through. No. Okay, uh, Steph. This is. Mm. Oh, never mind. That was a, a nope. little nope. one down from here. So let's. Uh, Hold off on that. Well, let's just do it since I just said stuff. Item D. Sure. So um, this is, oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. You want to do it? I can read it. Yeah. Uh, You're a parachutist. Yeah. I guess. So this is from BBC.com, I guess. <laughs> I mean, well, I don't know if I'd sorry. call you a parachutist or a skydiver. I think skydivers. Uh, yeah, most people would say Skydiver, yeah. but parachutist works. Well, hopefully you're a parachutist at the end of the skydive. You want to be able to. Otherwise, you don't do it very often. <laughs> I guess it depends on what phase of the jump you're actually that might be, in. That right? might be a one-way trip. Yeah, yeah. yeah. exactly. So this is at uh, it says RAF uh, Lincoln Heath fighter jets in near miss with parachutists. Um, two free-falling parachutists nearly collided in midair with two U.S. fighter planes traveling at almost 350 miles per hour. A report revealed. 
The skydivers uh, recorded the aircraft pass under them on helmet cameras as they fell at about 120 miles per hour, which is pretty typical. Uh, pilots from RAF Lincoln Heath should have been told by air traffic control the Cambridgeshire parachute site was active, uh, said the UK Air Prox Board. The U.S. Air Force Base was rebriefing crews to make them aware, it added. So the board was unable to establish just how close the two pairs came to colliding during the incident over uh, Chatteris Airfield on 17th April and classified it in the second highest danger category. The board was shown GoPro uh, footage filmed from the helmet of one of the parachutists and could clearly see the F-15s passing beneath, said the report. Uh, The jets had made a turn shortly before to avoid a refueling tanker and then were handed over from air traffic controllers at RAF Corningsby in Lincolnshire. Corningsby. Oh, Corningsby. I'm sorry. I just can't read. That's all. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a little ways away from the computer here. Corningsby. Aren't doctors supposed to be able to read? No, it's not not one of our required skills. Ah. uh, in Lincolnshire to those at Lincoln Heath in Suffolk, home of the U.S. Air Force's 48th Fighter Wing. However, the frequency became busy just as they transferred, and so by the time the F-15 pilots checked in with the controller, they were already about to fly over uh, Chatteris. The pilots should have known about its position and activities as part of their normal briefing routine and either uh, questioned air traffic control or avoided it. Operators from Chatteris Airfield, where several parachute clubs are based, call nearby air traffic controllers each morning to tell them if they are active, and the dropping aircraft also alerts them. The Airprox board said there was very little more that Chatteris could have done. The parachutists had no control over their speed or direction while in freefall, but could have opened their parachutes to slow their descent. Uh, Colonel uh, Will Marshall, 48th Fighter Wing Commander, said uh, UK airspace was incredibly complex and often congested. The safety of our air crew, as well as those we share the skies with, is our number one priority. We are using this incident to reinforce the vital importance of situational awareness and attention to detail for all of our air traffic controllers and air crew. Well, Captain Nick, you're the only one here that has experience with flying low levels and that kind of thing over near Lake and Heath and these other places. Um, do you really look uh, at these kind of advisories and, and possible risks when you're, when you're doing your route planning? Well, they should be on the maps. So if you're actually, uh, you know, drive, flying down a, a line on a map, yeah, you should have uh, taken a look at those. Uh, and uh, there's usually uh, no terms of the day. So, uh, you know, get briefed on them in the morning. Uh, what areas are active, et cetera. But uh, if they're particularly small uh, airfields that aren't active very often uh, or not regularly, then I guess there is a reason why they might have been overlooked. But air traffic uh, should have been aware of them, certainly if the dropping aircraft was speaking to air traffic. Yeah. And it sounds mm-hmm. unfortunate that they were handed over just at the time when really uh, someone should have been giving them avoiding action to make sure that it fly into it. So, uh, yeah, I have uh, an element of sympathy with the guys because, uh, you know, there is an awful lot going on in the UK airspace. And these guys are bimbling on at uh, eight or nine miles a minute quite often. I, I think they think they were probably going as slow as 350. Uh, miles an hour so probably uh, doing a much more tactical speed unless they were in the instrument pattern um so yeah you can cover a huge uh, amount of uh, the uk airspace in a very short time and it's uh, you know even with a moving map display it's very hard to keep up with all the little um 
danger areas, airfields, etc. So you would agree with Colonel Will Marshall that the airspace is incredibly complex and often congested? Well, I'd say it's it's not particularly complex. Uh, it's pretty simple, quite well, honestly. Well, for us uh, Americans, it is. Pretty, it is <laughs> <laughs> unless you're familiar, uh, but it is it is quite congested. Uh, you know, it's a bit of shark-infested custard down there, quite honestly. Uh, much nicer up in Scotland, where I did most of my flying. Uh, much freer and easier up there. There's not so much going on. And that's why they picked it for you. Yeah, because they knew I was terrible <laughs> at navigation. <laughs> Which apparently is really true. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So according so according to someone Absolutely. we know, a source close exactly to. Exactly <laughs> right. Yeah, I know. It's a bit sad, isn't it? But it is true, yes. Does the skydiver become a parachutist when the parachute comes out? Yes. I suppose, yeah. I think that's, that's, the, that's key. the consensus. <laughs> so if we're flying low level, it's in all, in all possibility that they actually had the chutes out. Uh, depends on what um, how I'll low they were going to deploy. It would be interesting to actually see the real video that they took from their yeah, GoPro cameras. Yeah, you know what? I'm sure I could probably find that. Yeah, I'm, I'm waving the bullshit flag on the Aprox board because uh, if you can get, I mean, it's it's not a Nick at airlinepilotguide.com. <laughs> <laughs> if you can, uh, if you can get the uh, a similar camera to the ones the guys were using, it should be pretty easy to work out the uh, focal length and the amount of, of uh, the angle of the lens, and it'd be very easy to work out uh, what the distance was by comparing the size of the aircraft against uh, known objects. So, I, I don't think they tried very hard, quite honestly. All right. Very interesting. Yeah, and I mean, there's a certain element that's um, skydiver responsibility as well, but it's all primarily before exiting the aircraft. And if you have aircraft that are traveling quite fast, it'd be near impossible to see them from the time you exit to the time you but are I, in proximity I mean, to them. I, I'm curious to know if the guys actually did employ their parachutes uh, because uh, if they were concerned about an impact, they presumably would have done it straight away. One, it makes them uh, more easily visual. Uh, and two, of course, it stops their descent and they don't get nearly so close. So depends on at which point they actually saw the uh, yeah, aircraft yeah. because if it's a last minute thing, if only just, we had the video, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Oh, damn. What is going on in the chat room? Uh, they're talking about horns. Yeah, that's what it I has to do with. Um, I have not listened to all of the new plane safety podcasts. Uh, but I need to know if Pip, the Pip couldn't believe that the Airbus has a horn. Beep beep. <laughs> does it? The eighty eight even has a horn. Yes, it does. Well, they, yeah, because uh, uh, Pip says, "Ooh, I need to know if the Mad Cog." I think he means the Mad Dog has a <laughs> horn. Can Steph ask Jeff? Well, why don't you just ask me, Pip? Uh, because yeah, he why knows, am I always doing all the well, asking? Well, it's because you're probably the only one that's actually looking at what people are saying in the chat. Yeah. Nick and I are reading it. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, we well, we sort of have a horn that uh, is mounted in the down there on the bottom side near the E and E compartment, or maybe in the E and E compartment. I don't know exactly where it comes out. It's in the. It, it's actually in the nose. 
Is it in the nose? Okay. And um, it's a very loud and annoying sounding horn. And the purpose of it is to, it's like the, what does it say? Ground crew call or something like that? It's it, it's actually maintenance call button. Maintenance call button. You hit the thing, it goes, this is like really annoying um, sound. It's annoying to us. Nobody on the ground can hear yeah, it. Yeah, they can't hear it. <laughs> so can you, you use it in the air? Sure. You could. Yeah, I don't yeah. think yeah, anybody's no going to hear it. Nobody's going to hear it. But you, maybe. Yeah. You just need an air horn, right? Yeah. Like uh, you're flying horn. around oh, and go, no, 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 no. no just on the, on the ground, just open the window and get you. No, no. Not a Use the air, air horn in the air and the ground horn on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, my Let's gosh. Look what you've I, done I, to I us. Would, I think it would be people. funny if we had a duck horn. <laughs> Me? Quack, quack. This is all quack. Tip's fault. I uh, no, I said tip. in the chat room. I didn't oh, blame oh. it on you, Steph. Okay. Well, I'll blame when, you when for other things. Cabin crew visiting. If we pass another airplane, I'd always reach up and sound the horn because you could hear it in the cockpit and she'd go, What's that? I said, it's the horn. We have to sound it when we go past the other airplane so they can hear us. We used to, uh, I don't I don't think I've ever done it in the uh, Mad Dog, but in the 7-2, we used to hit the uh, stall warning or the stick shaker uh, test button, and it sound, almost sounds like a machine gun. So you hear it. Reassuring I will admit I've done that to a certain individual that was not, it was studying the, uh, studying the batteries voltage uh-huh i'm trying to think i'm really trying to really think about how i want to phrase this that's why i'm kind <laughs> it of was like kit. <laughs> uh, studying the battery voltage i uh went ahead and <laughs> did this all test and flight. oh the person was like looking at the back of his eyelids uh, yes <laughs> gotcha <laughs> <laughs> and that person just about jumped out of their skin <laughs> But it's with somebody that I was flying with that I know had a really good sense of humor. Otherwise, I would never do that. But it was, let me tell you what, that was hysterical. Well, <laughs> the look. There was a guy in the C-141. There was a bunk in the in the cockpit, to, uh, a, a couple bunks in the back uh, against the bulkhead. And uh, we decided we'd play a prank and uh, everybody put their oxygen masks on. And there was somebody in the bunk that obviously didn't have their oxygen mask on. And we hit the... Uh, the uh, the horn that really obnoxious sounding horn that comes off when the uh, cabin altitude reaches a certain level and so and then, you know wakes up and looks and he looks at everybody and they have their oxygen mask on he's like tumbling out of the bunk trying to find an oxygen mask to put on we all had a good <laughs> laugh on that one we went oh we were just kidding there's nothing going wrong here <sighs> anyway okay um, back to uh, anything else uh, we want to say about the Skydiver slash parachutists slash fighter jocks. Crash, tra- crash test dummies. I'm sorry. Go ahead, uh, Nick. I'm sorry. I was just saying it happens fairly regularly. So why yeah. this particular one got on the news, I don't know. But uh, probably uh, because of the social meds nowadays. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there you go. Probably because that GoPro video is floating around out there. Probably yeah. so. Yeah, you're right. All right. Uh, item C. Two victims identified in plane crash near Toledo Express Airport. Yes, that is the name of the airport in Toledo, Ohio. A freight pilot who had nearly 50 years of flying experience was one of two men killed when their cargo aircraft crashed less than a mile from Toledo Express Airport. The nighttime incident, they really didn't need to say that, it's uh, cargo, right? Which is still being investigated, happened early Wednesday and caused a fiery impact after the twin engine went down in the parking lot of a repair shop. I think about 0.6 miles from the end of the runway, so they're close, they must have been on an approach to uh, Toledo Express when they crashed. It was a 62-year-old cargo aircraft. You think my airplane's old, huh? 62-year-old cargo aircraft, a twin-engine Convair 440, 
approaching about 2.37 a.m. when it crashed in the parking lot of Bubba's Diesel and Auto Repair. <laughs> Love Bubba's. And uh, let's see, what else? Uh, they just uh, This company had just um, purchased the airplane not long before this crash, I think in August of this year. And uh, on the aviation safety website, they have a, a history of this airframe. It was delivered in January of 1957, before I was born, thank you, to Scandinavian Air Services. Is that the actual formal name, SAS? Um, or something to that effect. And looks like SAS flew it for uh, a good, I don't know, uh, 12 years or so. And then Great Lakes Airlines flew it for a while, Emissary Airways, uh, uh, several different um, companies owned the airplane for quite some time. But the uh, last change of ownership occurred on the 19th of August, 2019, and it says to private ownership. So I guess this cargo flight was being operated as a, as a private flight. That's interesting. So maybe uh, uh, one of the guys, I think it was 72, another 69, something like that, uh, which is not that old now that I'm 60 years old. Um, and uh, not sure exactly what happened there. There were no distress calls, and uh, there is really no information in any of these news sources that I can see that kind of point to exactly what happened. I mean, they'd make note, I guess they were using some data from uh, flight aware or something that uh, the the airspeed decreased from some value to another, but that wouldn't be unusual at all or uncommon coming in for an approach. Uh, you would be configuring and slowing down to approach speed. So, what does it say? One ninety four miles per hour to one hundred and fifty one miles per hour within about a minute time frame. Um, I would imagine a Convair four forty, which I have not flown. The approach speed on it, I would imagine, is pretty slow, uh, you know, probably around 120 or something. I'm guessing. I don't know. Never flew the airplane. So that's sad that uh, we lost a couple of aviators in that uh, accident. Luckily, nobody on the ground was hurt. All right. Moving on to E. This is an update on that. Uh, we covered this on a previous episode, the Citation 560 XLS+. Plus. A crash in uh, Denmark, Aarhus, Denmark, and uh, it uh, we couldn't figure out exactly why it crashed, and uh, we didn't really have much information about it. But we said, as we always do, if we hear anything about what happened here, we'll definitely mention it in a future episode. So here we are, holding to our promise. A preliminary report shows that... Um, the uh, let's see prior I, I'm going to go to the highlighted portion of this prior to reaching an altitude of 500 feet the aircraft began to set to descend below the glide slope so they got they got set up on a long final for runway 10 right uh, ILS and about uh, just approaching the altitude of 500 feet the aircraft began to descend below the glide slope when the enhanced ground proximity warning system the EP, EGPWS began to sound. Uh, warning the crew of their descent below the glide slope, the first officer asked the captain whether to cancel the EGPWS warnings. The captain confirmed the descent was continued. So there was some ground fog, some shallow ground fog um, in the area at the time of this accident. Uh, they say that the captain uh, got the airport runway in sight or part of it. And I guess he was ducking down, maybe trying to hit the part of the runway where he could see it. I'm not sure. Reading between the lines here, uh, 
Um, not entirely unusual for the E GPWS system. Uh, part of the function of that system is to let you know if you're below the glide slope for any period of time. And it's, if you're purposely doing that, and there are times, uh, Dana, and I think that uh, Captain Nick would agree as well, where you, everything's under control. Maybe you're slightly be- below the electronic glide path, but um, the clear, the stopway area and everything else is, is clear of obstacles and everything else. You want to get the airplane down a little bit lower than normal, uh, what we call ducking under a bit, uh, to get the airplane on the runway um, as soon as you can or, or at, as close to the end of the runway as you can. So apparently that was what was happening here. And that's why the first officer asked, do you want me to, you know, cancel these warnings? And the captain said, yes. Um, the problem is approximately 450 meters before the uh, beginning of runway 10 right, the aircraft collided with the antenna mass system, the localizer for runway 28 left, the opposite end, which ruptured the left wing tank. After rolling a landing roll of approximately 60 meters, the nose landing gear collided with the near field antenna of the localizer for runway 28 and collapsed. While rolling on the main wheels and skidding on the nose section, the aircraft entered the stopway for runway 28 left. Now, the stopway is the part of the runway uh, before the actual uh, technical runway itself. It's the area, if you were taking off in the opposite direction, where you'd uh, it's clear of major obstacles and the airplane can get into that area if necessary if you're trying to stop it for like an abort or whatever. Um, the aircraft came to a full stop approximately 230 meters, 755 feet, after the beginning of runway 10 right. So they weren't even 1,000 feet down the runway of the runway they were attempting to land on when they stopped. That tell, shows you right there that uh, they, they, they landed a little bit short. Leaking fuel ignited, caught fire on the aft left-hand side of the fuselage. So that's a big whoopsie. Uh, ducked under and probably didn't have adequate visual references to make a safe maneuver and ended up landing short, hitting antennas, and uh, making it a bad day. Well, you, you mentioned Duck Under. Um, there are several airports out there that the glide slope is not, the electronic glide slope is not the same as the Pappy. And certainly uh, when they are not uh, coinciding, I think is the word that they use, uh, I will tend to come off, especially when I'm in a visual condition or can clearly see that the Pappy is giving me good guidance. It's going to give me usually a little closer in guidance to you know the end of the runway and give me more runway, usable runway, so I'll, I'll a lot of times uh, get on that. And you'll probably um, say to, something to your crew member that, hey, I'm absolutely happy for my guidance. Exactly. I'm on Pappy. Uh, I'm going to duck down here a little bit. Uh, as you as you mentioned, uh, if there's a good clearing, you know, if, you, if you, the airport perimeter is completely cleared and, and uh, nothing is in the uh, visual flight path in between me and the runway, sometimes I might go one dot below. Just so I can, you know, especially on those short runways, uh, one that comes directly to mind is uh, Pensacola. Yeah. I mean, it's only a 7,000-foot runway. It's a short runway. But, you know, it's got a very good clear clear uh, area uh, inside of the fence, as we would say, right. with no obstruction. So it's it's not uncommon in that type of situation for us to go ahead and, 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 and we always communicate. That's why we, we always do that. And conversely, and, and a lot of times I'll almost – be like ready. I'll have my hand up ready to push the glide slope um, light and you push the light and that cancels the EGPWS 
warning of the glide slope um, uh, below the glide slope warning. Um, but it's not something is that we do commonly. It's just in certain situations. And you might think we'd be attempted tempted to do that at an airport like LaGuardia because those runways are 7,000 feet long as well. However, that's a situation, unlike Pensacola, where if you're coming in and landing on runway four, uh, you don't want to get mm-hmm. too low there because there's a lot of stuff in there. There's not It's not really a clear path for you to duck under there. The same thing coming in on the piers, landing on the piers. Uh, I don't know about you, Dana, but looking at those piers, you go, I don't want to get too close to those because <laughs> you make an error in judgment. It's more okay. than well, just landing no, no. short. <laughs> it's, it's like shearing <laughs> your landing gear off. And there have been airplanes that have done that in the past. Well, in, in, especially 3-1, when you're doing that, the, the expressway visual, you come mm-hmm. around and down that end of the airport, <laughs> the runway's below the berm. Right uh, around the you they know they have like a blast keep, fence or something uh, yeah. well, on the well blast too. fence but the berm that mm-hmm. that keeps the harbor off the airport yeah you know it's like a, uh, a retaining wall whatever it is it's it's a good uh, you know ten foot high yeah at least and that's uh, actually the, there's a you know the airplane that slid off in LaGuardia in the snowstorm that's what saved them because yeah, it had the, that, the it berm on that the side berm. yeah it kept kept it from going over into the harbor but. You know, I was just looking at this, and this happened at nighttime. And one of the things that I'm I'm far more uh, conscientious of at at nighttime, I'm not going to duck down mm-hmm. at nighttime unless I have a really good pappy. And I look at the chart and it says not coincident with the glide path. Other than that, or coincident, what? Or coincident? Oh, coincident. Yeah, coincident. If if the electronic light slope is not you know, in line with the pappy, then, you know, mm-hmm. okay, I'll stay on pappy and I'll keep it, you know, too white, too red. So I'm right on. Right. Uh, at least try to, but, you know, certainly uh, at nighttime, I'm, I'm far more cautious and, and, and less willing to quote unquote duck down. So I'm not I sure think- if this, uh, you know, I, I tried to find some information about these runways and I was able to find this. I put a little image in the show notes here of the parallel runways at this airport. It's not a big major international airport. It's a smaller, mostly uh, private uh, corporate kind of airport. And um, it, I don't know if they had any visual uh, glide slope indications, uh, you know, either VASI or PAPI systems. Uh, it didn't mention it in the narrative of this, but um, I'm wondering, I, I bet you're right, Dana, they probably didn't have that, and they relied completely on their sense of their path, knowing that they were deviating from the electronic path at night. It's a very dangerous thing. And, and I these runways aren't dangerous. that short. Like, they're not no. as short as LaGuardia. Or That's why I'm like. wondering, stuff. if, uh, because it mentions earlier in the narrative that the, there was that low shallow mm-hmm. um, blanket of fog. And in, a lot of times in those cases, there are like patches where you can where see you can a lot see. of things, but yeah. then he can't. And then thinking he probably saw a patch that, well, I, I can land right there, which is not a very smart thing to do either. But yeah, no need to get it down so darn early unless you can't see any of the rest of the runway, I guess. Yeah. And they're landing on 10 right, which is 8,865 feet mm-hmm. long. Yeah, no, I'm going to say that in, in my environment, we would never have done this. Uh, there's no such thing as ducking under. There's no such thing as landing uh, short of the threshold when you've got a big airplane. Uh, oh, we don't land short. Just to be clear, we, we don't ne- land yeah, short we of the never threshold. land short of the threshold. Oh, this guy was going to land in oh, the he, Yeah, uh, well, I don't in think he intended snowway. to. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't yeah. think he intended to do that. Okay. 
Yeah, yeah, we we we. we a, I'm not quite sure what I'm not quite end. sure what ducking down does for you, other than shallow your approach angle. Then, because if you're planning to land beyond the threshold, what difference does it make? Because well, normally, get, the, go ahead, uh, Dana. I was going to say we, you know, we we shoot especially on shorter runways. Like again, going back to Panama, uh, Pensacola, Pensacola. I mean, I'll shoot I'll shoot for the thousand foot marker all day long, and that's actually below glide slope. And the reason why I'm doing that is, and, and even even in other airports, uh, you know that that are, are similar, like DC, leaning to the north, I do the same thing. I, I, I land, I look at that thousand foot marker, and I want to be touching down. In actuality, at not this training cycle, Jeff, but I'm pretty sure in the last training cycle, they had us trying to do those spot landings between thousand to fifteen hundred feet down the runway because of that exact problem. So with our, with our operation, Nick, yes, you're, you're landing on. As, as a uh, major international carrier, most of the runways you're landing on are probably 9,000 foot or greater. We're operating um, in 7,000 foot range, and, uh, you know, our aircraft is not the best at stopping. I mean, especially the 88. It's, it's well, got, I, uh, I think there's the difference. Uh, 7,000 feet would not be an unusual runway length for me. I've landed at Boston on the short runway there. How long is that? Uh, it's right at around 7,000. Yeah. Uh, so it's not a big deal. Um, it's just uh, really your stopping distance is the important factor. Uh, right. But this guy was ducking down, or this guy was coming below the glide slope uh, at 500 feet. Now, if you're going to change your touchdown point from 1,500 feet, which would be normal for anyone, I think, to 1,000 feet, you're not going to start descending below at 500 feet no really, no that's too early going to descend below that much really. yeah when we when we say duck under uh nick uh we we are not allowed to duck under in, unless we're like below minimums um yeah. like 200 feet Be between the touchdown you know elevation and 200 feet above it we're yeah. allowed yeah. to if the situation warrants to duck under a little bit just to try to you know get touchdown a little bit earlier than normal in the uh, touchdown absolutely zone. and uh, certainly in in my environment uh if you get an epgws warning you you about because yeah. you don't know necessarily why it's gone off unless you've got warnings on your approach plates to indicate that you might get false warnings uh and even then i'd be very cautious about well, Dana said, you know, in, in your environment your previous environment and you know big international airports i mean i can't imagine yeah. any situation where that would be no. warranted therein lies the distance the the, yeah. the difference so we're, we're flying to uh, airports that uh, have got really good equipment and yeah. they're well surveyed and you know we and it's not something that we do like every trip this is a not a common thing at all dana and i dana would agree with me that there are just certain places and certain conditions if they're uh you know appropriate then you are given the uh, ability to duck under a little bit not, but sure. not land in the stopway <laughs> we're not allowed to do that um the uh, uh chat room we have some experts in the chat room and we have pip um and Bam. <laughs> uh, just kidding. Oh. Pip's an expert. Uh, he says that uh, 10 right has high intensity approach lights and Pappy. So it does have a precision approach path indicator, which is a visual uh, guidance lighting system that we use to uh, determine whether or not we're on a, an appropriate glide path. So, And it may or may not have been on. Yeah, we don't know. I don't know what we the don't know. And also, are. he mentions the glide slopes at 2.75 already. So it's that a pretty is shallower, shallower than approach normal. to start with. Yeah. So you're really cutting your margins down to nothing if you're going to go below that. Right. So, yeah, obviously, uh, in hindsight, it was not a good idea. Definitely. No, no it didn't end and well with it. I think we're 
speculating at least a little bit as to why they did that. That's true. Yeah, we know that they did, but we don't know exactly the why. Yeah, we are definitely speculating, which is what we do here on the APG. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and and, and the best part about this conversation is the people that are listening to the show are are hearing our different inputs into how to fly the aircraft. And the end of the day is, is that we as professionals generally uh air on the side of safety anyways that's you know what we get paid for so yeah, speak it's, for it's, yourself. it's a learning point that when somebody's out there flying around their Cessna 152 or 72 or their rj or you know getting to the mainline airlines that you know that's that's how we think and, and how we keep it extra safe exactly safety is paramount Captain Al makes an interesting uh, remark. Uh, I think he goes he used to go there regularly in the 330 CFU. Is that the same place? I think it is. Mm, no, oh, no. no, 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 it's not. Was, but he said uh, it was 2,300 meters. Uh, so someone will tell me how many feet that is. That's so got to be about 7,000 feet. Yeah. Around that. Much. But his comment is, is, I think, is quite valid. He says most of this resolves, revolves around perceived benefits versus the real risk. True. That is true. At the time, it seems like the benefit is greater than it probably really is for the risk that you're encountering. And, you know, as we know, a lot of times you'll do something and you, and, and you get away with it. It worked, it worked out just fine. But then there are times when it works the other way. So and Neil, Neil brings up an interesting comment uh, about the Asiana 777. Don't share off the tail doing that. Well, I don't know that they were trying to duck under in that They case. were not that attempting was, to duck that under. Was not a, no, I don't uh, think so. Deliberate, uh, attempt. That was a completely different that thing. Was a, that was completely yeah. l- loss of situational awareness yeah. of your speed and energy of the airplane. That was correct. Oh, I don't even want to think about that one. Okay. Um, battery fires. We're always worried about fire on an airplane. And there was an incident uh, recently. Do you see the photo that I included at the top there? A little bit of yep. a Indeed. charred sidewall. Scorched. Yeah, yeah, scorched. There, that's a better word. It was a China Eastern Airlines uh, Airbus 320. They had to return to land at this uh, Nanjing Lukao International Airport. Uh, looks like one of the passengers had a battery pack that suffered a thermal runaway. And luckily, they got the airplane back on the ground. They got the runaway um, controlled, doused, or whatever they did to it. But I, I, I see this, and I go, ooh, that's like my worst nightmare, like one of these things lighting up and bringing an yeah, airplane. Yeah, it's interesting. Back. So on the aircraft that you fly, do you have in-seat power for? Yep. Um, we do. So people can charge their devices. Not all the, not, I don't think in the economy session, section oh, we but do. But at least some of the seats have Yeah, but in, like com- Comfort to- Plus and First Class. They do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so my comment I'm going to make on this is, uh, you know, I just traveled with a lot of electronic equipment for scuba diving. I have my dive computer. I have my underwater, my camera, my underwater flashlights, my underwater strobe. And I, you know, this, this came to my mind. I'm thinking to myself, all right, well, normally in the past, I would have actually put this in my checked baggage. This time I did not. I Good brought all, all with me on the airplane. Of course, then I have my portable battery, you know, my my external uh, battery, and then my iPhone. So I started thinking about that. That's quite a bit of battery power in my hands. And that's just you. 
And that's just mm-hmm. me. I'm, and all the people in the back of the airplane, how much do they carry? Right. Well, and I found it, so I found it interesting. So I've taken a few flights this, this week. Um, our, uh, you never fly anywhere. What are you talking about? I never go anywhere, <laughs> but this was the first time I heard the cabin crew announce our flight from London to Edinburgh and back both ways. Uh, this was with Flybe. They, um, asked, uh, that no one charge any devices and they were very, uh, there were several announcements made about, you know, if your device becomes overly warm or you're concerned about it at all, uh, to notify, uh, flight attendants immediately. Wow. Yeah, I think the biggest problem are cheap, uh, unregulated power packs uh, that don't shut themselves down when they have uh, temperature uh, increases and uh, can get into this runaway situation. I think if you spend the money and buy uh, a a well-designed pack from a legitimate manufacturer, a well-known manufacturer, trusted manufacturer, you're going to be all right. But a lot of people buy these sort of things off eBay. They're uh, manufactured cheaply from the Far East. And uh, they don't, the reason, one of the reasons they're cheap is because they don't spend the money to fit all the safeguards. Right. Yeah. So interesting, like my phone is just always in a charging case. So technically my phone was still charging unless I turned everything off and removed it out of the case. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well. There you go. Anyway. I'm going to tell them. I know. That was bad <laughs> on my part. Yeah, sorry. Act, and you, 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 that's a great point because not too long ago, I did buy an extra external battery because I uh, you know, carry so much with me. And I was online on Amazon and looking at the local, you know, local companies, you know, the local stores you can buy this stuff. And there were a lot of off brand type of uh, charges. I I actually opted to spend a little more money and buy the exact same charger that we use as our backup backup battery at the company, mm-hmm. and the, the, my reasoning behind that was, and it's a small one, it's 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 like one quarter the size of the one that we actually carry around for for our normal <clears> operation. <throat> um, but I figured, okay, if it's good enough for us to carry in the cockpit, and they've you know probably probably vetted it is my guess probably uh, vetted the battery and the ability for to handle. Uh, the regular use that we put it through, then the, the little one's got to be a little safer. So that's actually the reason why I bought the one. I, bought. I actually had one of those uh, from that company, Anchor, A-N-K-E-R, before the uh, officially... Oh, you out the W. No, I didn't. <laughs> I had to think about that for a second. I know, I did too. I, I didn't put the W in the, the front. Pad. We were like, oh. where does the W go? Yeah. Oh. So, so here's some advice well, I figured for you. it out pretty quick. Yeah. So, so if you buy it from Wanker, it's a good chance that it's not the top quality one. Yeah. No, but my the, point is that you said, sure. well, it could be from the Far East. Well, they're all from the Far East as far as I know. But yeah. there are some companies that are higher quality and they go through testing and they have the circuitry, as Nick mentioned, that will sense a thermal runaway and it shut itself down. So, you know, yeah, you have to be careful about, you know, but the people are people. They want to save some bucks. Wait, this one looks just like this one, and it's like half the cost or less than half Well, the cost. I don't mind them saving bucks as long as they don't bring it on the airplane. Exactly. Well, I mean, that's exactly the thing. What, what Whenever you go out and have a conversation first, and they figure out that you work for an airline, what's the first comment out of their, their mouth? What route do you can fly? Can you get me a cheap flight? <laughs> can you, yeah. What route do you fly or can you get me a cheap flight? Right. So you yeah. think about that same thing when they're getting on the airplane. Do you think anybody really spends any time thinking about uh, what type of battery, external battery pack they're bringing on the aircraft or all oh. their other batteries? No. They, they, they certainly don't. So just think of, I mean, I had six batteries with me. 
Yeah. Well, think about this last trip. It's not just a risk on airliners. It's also a risk on boats. They think that the that horrible tragedy of the dive boat uh, off the California San Bernardino coast um, or San. Yeah. uh, In the uh, island, Santa Cruz Island uh, was caused by charging devices, electronic devices while they were all sleeping. Um, and uh, I think that's what yeah. uh, may have caused yeah. that horrible fire that killed 34 people. That would explain why it spread so incredibly quickly. Yes. So, of course, that thing is still being investigated by the NTSB, but uh, that's some of the stuff that I've heard in certain reports. So what are we going to do if they ban battery packs on airplanes? Or, or, well, you just can't. Iron? No. Well, let's hope we all just live long enough for them to develop a new type of battery. Yeah. A safe battery. Yeah. Um, finally, item G, instructor and student pilot survived plane crash at Arizona Airport. Uh, they were injured, not killed. Uh, How the hell did they survive? I don't know. That? There's a picture that we're all looking at and shaking our heads. There's an airplane yeah. that basically looks like it came straight down, nose first, and made it about halfway through this uh, building. I guess it's a hangar or something. Looks like a hangar. It's a big, very know. tall it's building. It doesn't look like a hangar at all. Oh, it doesn't? Okay. Well, no, maybe it was a back. Warehouse or maybe somebody's, I don't know. Okay. Well, Storage. anyway, it was a single engine air coupe 415-C that crashed into the airport's, op- I think it looks like an airport operations building. There you go. Shortly See, after takeoff. Exactly what it is. And, uh, so this was an air coupe? Yes. Mm-hmm. I want to fly one of those. If those blokes can do that to it and survive, that's the <laughs> no, airplane. It's amazing. <laughs> Fairly, uh, yeah. Very sturdy yeah, airplane. It's, it's better known as a flying air tank. Yeah, really. <laughs> they said that they didn't, in this article, they say that uh, they don't know what the severity of their injuries are. I would imagine they're probably in pretty serious injuries. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, not as serious as that high. building is because that airplane's in pretty good shape compared to the building. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so to paint the picture for our audio listeners, like literally you're looking at the side of the building and the aircraft has come halfway through it, nose down and like just stuck in the side of the building with one wing. Yeah. It's gouged it. penetrated about 10, 12 feet of that at building. Least, yeah. It still looks like an airplane. Kind yeah, of. it does. Yeah. It's retained. Oh, it definitely I mean, looks it's like definitely, an airplane. Yeah. It's definitely, you can crumpled up a little, but it's. <laughs> I you can clearly see that you can see the main main uh, body of the aircraft, and it doesn't look like it's been no, too I terribly think that damaged. Propeller will be usable as well. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's just yeah. a little bent on the <laughs> one side. <laughs> just rebend huh. it. It'll be a fine. Yeah, just hammer that. It'll buff out. Bend, bend the other side to match. <laughs> okay, that is not serious advice from the APG <laughs> crew. Just to be sure well. people understand. All righty. Well, if you're if you're listening to this, please go look at the pictures because it's yeah, well, it's that'll impressive. be in the show notes for you to peruse. And with that, that's the end of our news segment. And now it's time for one of the best parts of the show, which is your feedback. Captain, incoming message. Let's start with the first item in our feedback folder from Dave. And he sent us some audio feedback. Shall we listen to it? Let's do. Why not? All right. Nick doesn't want to. Do we have to have a unanimous vote? Hi, everybody. I hope everybody's okay. It's Dave from the UK. Uh, It's my second feedback. Uh, So I'd just like to first of all say thank you to Steph for answering my questions on the migraine issue. 
Uh, unfortunately, I've had a couple of migraines recently, so the flight training is still on hold. The reason for this feedback and the question I have is all around the amazing photographs that we've seen coming out of the aircraft that's used to investigate hurricanes, um, to fly into the eye of the storm, to take photographs and data, etc. I can't believe, or I can't imagine, I should say, what's going through people's minds who want to do that. Um, it looks pretty hairy to me. It's not something that I'd fancy. I'm just wondering if you guys have ever had the chance to do that. Would you like to do it? Um, but also, what special skills will the pilot need to do that? And also, what sort of plane is used? I noticed it's a, it's, a, it's a prop plane. I don't know exactly what type of aircraft it is, but it, I presume it must be pretty sturdy. Any information you can give me on this, I'd appreciate. Um, I say I'm fascinated by the pictures and fascinated by the whole thing. I don't know if there's any plain tales that can be done around this, but it's a very interesting subject, in my opinion. Anyway, thanks very much. Keep up the good work, and uh, I'll speak to you again soon. Thank you. Well, I must say, I hope not. <laughs> the plain tales thing. <laughs> um, just kidding. Uh, yeah, they are prop planes. Um, no special skills required than other than other than great flying skills that we all have. Uh, but the uh, airplanes themselves, they use a couple of different airplanes here in the U S anyway. I don't do, do other countries. They must have hurricane hunters in, in other countries, right? Well, it's um, not really an issue in most other countries. It's just here in the U S well, Mexico, there's those typhoons in, out there in uh, Asia. And well, that's what I was going to go with Asia. And you get yeah. typhoons, right? But well, they're the same I, weather phenomenon. It's called the different thing. Yeah. We call yeah. it hurricanes. Australia we call as well. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm. But I'm, I don't know if other um, like government weather organizations. Yeah, I wish I'd thought of that question a, before I just asked it live online or while we're doing the show. But if you know out there, dear listeners, uh, send us some information about it. But I did look up uh, some hurricane hunters on the uh, the Wikipedia, and uh, the ones that I that I'm most familiar with are the ones that the U.S. military uses. And believe it or not, it's a reserve unit that is. Um, exclusively tasked with the hurricane hunter missions in the u.s and they use the venerable hercules the c-130 i think it's a, a j model which is the latest model they've used all kinds of models in the past and uh hercules 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 yes and they uh, the use orions as well yeah yes i was going to say the uh, national okay. oceanic uh what's the other part uh, atmospheric uh, administration uses the uh, WP-3D Orion, the P-3, a very rugged airplane as well, and uh, also made by Lockheed. Interesting. Lockheed makes some pretty beefy airplanes, I'd say. Yeah. Um, and uh, so the, the photos that you're seeing are probably from either one of those, the uh, NOAA's WP-3 or the... Um, the hurricane hunter, but the, uh, the reserve unit based in, uh, at, uh, Keesler air force base in Biloxi on the Gulf coast of the United States. Um, the, uh, C one thirty model. Now, somebody there. did an interview with, uh, some of these pilots, uh, on a podcast. I'm desperately trying to remember which podcast it was. Can you remember Jim? Mm, no. Okay. Uh, it was kind of an echo interview uh, one, but mm -hmm. I'll try and remember okay. and if I can, uh, if I can find it, I will, I'll let you know so you can put it in the show notes. But it was it was brilliant. Um, 
Oh. Was it flying um, in life or was it? No, I have no, a feeling it might have been opposing bases. Opposing bases? Yeah, I, I'll I'll check up and find out. But it was very, okay. very, very interesting about this pilot uh, who does this for a day-to-day job. Yeah. Good stuff. Um, the uh, my main man, Micah, makes the point uh, that the they also have a Gulfstream 4. Uh, that's a highly modified Gulfstream 4 that NOAA has uh, high altitude above 41,000 feet to document upper and lower level winds that affect cyclone movement. Um, yeah. Uh, I think, yeah, I kind of recall somebody doing some kind of an interview of the um, Hurricane Hunters as well. And I've seen some videos, some, some um, yeah, some television programming or video programming that um, – that uh, did a nice job of of riding along with the hurricane hunters and and uh, all the capabilities of these airplanes. Micah says yeah. it was on the airplane geeks. Oh, okay, so, there uh, we go. There go. Airplane geeks. I never yeah. heard of that. Is oh, that a podcast? Right. Is that a podcast? I don't know. I'm not familiar with that one. Mm, probably never one heard of, of the it. better aviation <laughs> Just podcasts kidding, out there. Go listen to them. It's one of the also rounds, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's one of the best. It's still the best. <laughs> no, that's right. I remember the interview was done at Oshkosh. I just couldn't remember which of the many podcasters that were there actually did the interview, but it was Airplane Geeks. Their on-location correspondent, Robert. Yeah, and what I'm thinking of is something, it was like a video one. It was not done by the Airplane Geeks. There was another one. Yeah, but it uh, you know kind of um, documents the the whole mission and what's required to get into the unit and, uh, and the training that they have. They do all their training for the pilots um, at uh, the base, Keesler Air Force Base in Biloxi, because it's such a, a limited mission, uh, exclusive ah, mission. There you go, Armando. It was Armando on PTUK. Ah, there you go. Yeah, he, uh, he, that's the one I'm thinking of. Okay. Mm-hmm. So multiple um, other podcasts have actually interviewed these folks. Yeah, yes. except us. That we didn't. One must not lose the fact that with Hurricane Hunters, they're flying eight to 10 hour missions. And I don't know about the Herc. I'm pretty sure the P3, I'm pretty sure both of them, neither one of them have an autopilot. So this is all hand flown. Um, of course, the uh, G4 has an autopilot. but Well, I think that I, the uh, the J model, the latest model of the uh, C-130s they're using, I'm sure have uh, an autopilot. It's pretty, they have a pretty... Uh, um, I wouldn't imagine they're using the autopilot flying through that. Well, I don't think so, though. no. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm saying they That's, have one. I don't think they'd be using it when they're actually flying through the uh, wall of the uh, hurricane. Uh, I wouldn't want to. Um, you know, you're basically flying through thunderstorms. So it's 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 quite – Yeah. I've seen video on it. It's, it's actually quite violent. Well, so, so I'm thinking, you know, uh, would I ever want to do something like this? Uh, heck No. no. That's cray cray. We don't hear that anymore, do we? I'd love um, to do it. Be- yeah. Sounds great. Okay. Well, yeah, yeah you're an adventure. They yeah. uh, they use um, uh, Doppler radar to pick the uh, good points of entry uh, and avoid the big wind shears. And once you're in the uh, in the middle bit, it's uh, it's like sailing around in a duck pond. Well, um, <laughs> okay. Very good descriptive. Uh, there. No, I'm um, with I'm with Dana. I've seen those video. It does look pretty. Uh, yeah, I think it's very hair raising yeah. times. I have a link to <laughs> an article um, from Popular Mechanics Magazine, uh, March of 1950. It was only 35 cents for this magazine back in 1950, and the article is about fly into the heart of a typhoon, 
and that they were using a B-29 at the time, I believe. And um, I believe, is this the story where they actually lost the uh, airplane and aircrew? No, I guess they made it back, but it's a pretty interesting story. So I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Pretty interesting. They've been doing this for a while with many, many different airplanes over its history of uh, its mission. Anything else? No. All right. Thanks for the question, Dave. Very timely because we just had Dorian run through pretty close to uh, the U.S. Didn't make landfall or did it technically make landfall? It did in um, Hatteras. Hatteras is where it made landfall. North Carolina. North Carolina. Extreme Eastern Coast. Two, two, I think it was. Two, I think, yeah. It's two. It's two. Category two. (laughs) It's two. Okay. Um, Let's move on with the second item. Chuck have, uh, he asks, Jeff and company, just listening to your story about the aircraft evacuation in Hawaii. That was the uh, A321, I believe, that they had a evacuation because of smoke in the cabin. I was wondering, have you or Nick or Dana ever done an emergency evacuation on one of your flights. Thanks for a wonderful podcast series. And this is from super wonderful podcast series. Super. Oh, I missed the super part. Come in. I'm knocking on wood because I'm hoping never to have to do that. Oh, okay. (laughs) Oh, I thought it was housekeeping. (laughs) Housekeeping. Housekeeping. Yeah, no, I have not. So Dana, his answer is uh, one in the no column. And let me go next Two now in the no column. And Nick, what column do, do you uh, put I your mark? Three, and three then column. in the no column. Well, I, I did evacuate myself from a phantom that was on fire Ooh. as we taxied in. But okay. that doesn't really count, does it? No. I think that's an emergency evacuation of an yeah, aircraft. Yeah, but not probably. It's not really what Chuck was asking no. about. No, no. No. Not evacuating. And uh, in my rush to get out of the aircraft, I forgot to disconnect one lanyard, which was attached to my dinghy. So uh, as I got like 10 feet from the airplane, I fell flat in my face. With <laughs> this, this cord dragged tight and stopped me dead in my tracks and also set off my emergency locator beacon. So while I was flat on my face, everyone knew where I was. Um, yeah, but I bet nobody and- had video of it. No, they thank the Lord for yeah. that. Before the days of uh, exactly cell phone right. video, where everyone's like, oh, look at this guy. And the lovely thing was uh, the junior engineering officer, who could see it was a jet pipe fire, uh, clambered straight up into the cockpit that I've run away from uh, and fired up the engine and blew out the fire. Oh. Which made me feel a bit inadequate. Yeah, yeah we used to taxi that. in with one engine shut down. Yeah. And it was the shutdown engine that had developed a jet pipe fire as we taxied in. All I was told was, Nick, you're on fire. So I went, oh, bloody hell. And emergency evacuation, off we went. And the engineer, of course, could see it was a jet pipe fire. So he just started up that engine and it blows that out. Ah, that must be the same thing. We call it a tailpipe fire. Yeah. 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 That's the funny thing. You know, people want to, if you get a tailpipe fire in a modern airliner, you're thinking, okay, we'll pull the fire handle and do the mm-hmm. agent, but nope, that doesn't <laughs> engine, help. Engine <laughs> fire on start in a piston aircraft, continue cranking until... Uh, there you go. Yeah. Same thing. Right. Yeah. Just keep, a, keep the air running. Cranking with the W? So learning, learning point here, folks, ladies and gentlemen, learning point is that if they are giving you a fire signal, signal outside and you have no fire signal in the cockpit, Keep on motoring the engine. Yes. It's a tailpipe. And the fire signal is? 
Ah! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> run away, run away. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's a figure of eight. Yep, it's, it's like it's like being a conductor. <laughs> What's this guy doing? He must be well, listening to people running away from the airplane. Probably good. Yeah. <laughs> They're all bolting. <laughs> okay. Uh, moving on to three. I think we can do this before we do our plane tail. What do you think? Sure. Okay. Uh, dear captains, Jeff, Nick, Dana, and Dr. Steph. Long time lurker. I mean, listener, first time caller. I'm writing about two resources that if you listen to talk radio, that's a first time or long time listener. First time caller is what a lot of people say. Uh, anyway, uh, I'm writing about two resources that West coast of the United States listeners might enjoy. And he says, first about myself, I'm transitioning from military to commercial flying and have uh, absolutely loved every episode of your podcast since I found it. Around episode 290. Oh, thank goodness he's not listening to any of the earlier ones. He's a liar. <laughs> and uh, let's see. Where was I? I had to make it a little bit bigger so I could read it. Um, I have not gone back and listened to the earlier episodes. Kids don't leave a lot of time for that. Yeah, we understand. Although I did check out episode 90 with First Officer Tony. He looks a lot like Dana. I flew the CH-46E twin rotor helicopter and MV-22B Osprey uh, tilt rotor for the Marine Corps. I'm sure Captain Dana would enjoy a ride in either of those aircraft. Excuse yes, me? I would. I guess I wouldn't. Um, I'm currently flying for a West Coast regional carrier who until recently flew routes for Acme, but the company has not renewed to continue flying routes for Acme and is, quote, still searching for its true north. I also recently moved to Huntington Beach and lived just outside the initial approach fix for the ILS into Long Beach. So we have a great location for plane spotting from our yard. And just by the way, Huntington Beach, Long Beach uh, is very close to where I grew up in Los Alamitos. I caught the snippet from episode 388 that Captain, oh, here we go. Captain Jeff grew up in Lakewood, just north of Long Beach. My wife grew up in Lakewood and was an altar girl at her Catholic church, St. Cyprian. Possibly one of the first. Maybe she mean, he means one of first the first altar, altar girls. girls. Yeah, yeah. Uh, her father, because I I don't think it was the first church in uh, Lakewood. Uh, anyway, boom boom. That was uh, my attempt at humor. Her father also went to Lakewood High School, although he graduated in 1971, so he would have been a few years ahead of Captain Jeff. I know you probably didn't overlap with any of these, but I found it's rare to hear of anyone actually from Lakewood, California, as it is not a very large city tucked in among all the other cities in Los Angeles and Orange Counties. My wife usually just claims Long Beach when she is telling people where she's from. And just a side note here, I did uh, contact him and say, yeah, I was until I was about three or four, I lived in Lakewood, but then we moved to uh, Rossmore slash Los Alamitos. And uh, anyway, I had a nice um, private conversation with Bruce. Um, and usually when I tell people, you know, are, they say, oh, Southern California, where? And then I say, are you, are you familiar with Southern California? And I usually start with like Long Beach, Seal Beach, Huntington Beach. And then if they say, oh, yeah, we know all those areas. And I say, okay, Los Alamitos to be exact. Anyway, moving on. As far as the resources I mentioned, here they are. 
Vandenberg missile launches. You mentioned a story in episode 388 about testing delivery of mail with a missile or a missile for those of you in the UK. While mail is not being delivered by missile, they are still launching missiles out of Vandenberg Air Force Base on the West Coast. There's a mailing list that you can sign up for to be alerted when missiles are going to launch. This is helpful for anyone flying to know there might be something out there. These launches are visible from from much of the Southern California area, especially close to the shoreline. I've been able to see several SpaceX rockets. Ooh, that must be cool to watch. And he gave us a, a link to the um, mail list, I guess you can sign up for these launch alerts. And then uh, this is my favorite, the hangar in Douglas Park. Another fascinating piece of history in this area is the Douglas Park area on the north side of the Long Beach Airport. This is where Douglas and then McDonnell Douglas and then finally Boeing manufactured many famous aircraft. See the attached plaque for the types and quantities of airframes they built here. You will note the MD-80, MD-90, and B-717 airframes, which would be of interest to Captains Jeff and Dana. They have a food court called the Hangar, which is built to look like an old hangar. There is also a runway leading up to the building. Your listeners might want to check out this great aviation-themed establishment and enjoy many types of food. I especially enjoyed the wide selection of IPAs available. We found lots of inside and outside seating and a play area for the kids. And when I wrote Bruce back, I said, sounds like a great place for a meetup if I ever get back out there to that area of the country. And it gives us a, uh, a Google Maps uh, URL to find the hangar at the Long Beach Municipal Airport. He says, I know treks to the West Coast are rare for any of you, but I will keep an eye out for any meetups or uh, if possible. In the meantime, keep the blue side up and the IPAs flowing, Bruce. And then he has some pictures here. Uh, he mentioned the, the plaques. And I, you know what I thought was interesting, Dana? I didn't realize a lot of great airplanes, by the way, uh, starting with the uh, in 1941, um, uh, the C-47 Skytrain, yeah. B-17 Flying Fortress, A-26 Invader, uh, an uh, amazing um, number of very uh, prominent airplanes in, in U.S. aviation history. But the DC-9s listed, and they have the number of uh, DC-9s that were actually produced – and that number is 956. And then I moved down to the MD-80 line. And it says 1,191. I didn't realize that they made more Mad Dogs than they did the DC-9. Yeah, that's quite interesting because if you think of all the Mad Dogs out there that we know of, uh, not too many airline operators, especially here in the States, use them. Right. Uh, primarily American in, 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 uh, in Delta use those. Acme, well. Well, and Delta too, yeah, I think they yeah, have Delta some. Delta too, yeah, Acme and Delta. So, <laughs> um, and then of course, Allegiant had a a, a, a a very modest fleet of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but beyond like that, MD 83s I think. Right? Yeah, well, yeah, mm-hmm. you can include them all. I mean, I know yeah, American, yeah. American had almost four hundred of them. Yeah. yeah, the MD eighty on this plaque, I think, covers all covers all of the series. Yeah, yeah. So, I was just trying yeah. to think. I and, and then you think about. Uh, Acme slash in also Delta, you know, 120, 130, somewhere around there. Um, but that's all the major operators I can think of for that airplane. Oh, yeah. T- I'm sorry, TWA. 
So, but, you know, but, I mean, but so many that, other airlines that we know of flew the DC-9. That's why I was kind of surprised, as you probably are as well. Yeah, that's, that's Anyway. What's irritating me is seeing that B-717, because it has nothing to do with Boeing. It was a McDonnell Douglas product known as an MD-95. Well, I'll, I'll have you know that as Jeff was reading through this, and he went through the part that said first Douglas, then McDonnell Douglas, and then Boeing, there was an audible... Um, uh, I don't know what the right uh, word for the <laughs> vocalization. That I was Nick listening made. for that, actually. I didn't hear it on my end. He must have been a, muted or something. Yeah, we were muted. Okay. Douglas, McDonald, Douglas, and Boeing. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. 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 I don't think that Boeing actually technically, Small. well, maybe they were in charge you know, some, for some of the last C-17s that were produced, I guess, perhaps. Uh, yeah. C-17s? C-17s, yes. Did I say B seventeen? <laughs> yeah, sorry. I don't think. Perhaps. Yeah, never mind. Uh, uh, maybe I just didn't hear you properly. No, I probably said B seventeen, not C seventeen. B seventeen is a little outdated. Yeah, but they yeah. did make them there at uh, Long Beach. The B seventeen? I think so. Wasn't that one of the um, things on the plaque? Uh, a B seventeen flying yeah. fortress. B seventeen uh, first flight nineteen forty two. They produced three thousand on this site. Mm -hmm. That's a lot. Um, I always kind of joke around that, um, uh, you know, I was born in Long Beach and so was the airplane that I fly. So it was almost like kismet Aww. that yeah. I'm flying that jet. It was meant to, meant it was to meant to be apparently. Anyway. And Bruce, we're, we're very intrigued by the, uh, the hangar and their IPAs. Mm -hmm. yes. We have some concern though about their runway designation. I'm not sure <laughs> 68. What, 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 <laughs> on the compass. Huh. I didn't even notice that, but yeah, that is a little odd. And that's you wouldn't want to duck under on this runway. No, that would be. Well, and you want to start stop before the next set of bollards. <laughs> if you're wondering what we're talking about, you need to look at the show notes, and we'll put those photos in there so you can look and enjoy them as well. Thanks, Bruce. What, what, yes, sir. What I was going to say it's it's amazing that the uh, amount of military aircraft versus civilian um, is. Uh, yeah. You know, it's only what six, seven. I'm sorry. Uh, well, uh, true, truly four, five, truly only commercial aircraft, and then two commercial slash militaries, which would be the DC-9, C-9, and the KC-10 slash DC-10, but most of the other aircraft ever produced here, military. So, yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. Well, thanks again, Bruce, for that. And hopefully one of these days we'll head back out there and we'll do some kind of a meetup. Sounds like the hangar is a place to go. All right. With that, it looks like it's now time for this week's installment of the Old Pilot's Plane Tales. And this one, folks, is one that you'll remember for a long time. The Old Pilot's Plane Tales. Still waiting for help. Still praying. The north of Africa holds the world's largest hot desert, known as the Greatest Desert, or more commonly by the Arabic word Sahara. It is bounded to the east by the Red Sea, to the north by the Mediterranean, and the west by the Atlantic. To the south, its vast expanse, some 3.6 million square miles, is halted by the Sahel, a belt of semi-arid tropical savanna around the Niger River Valley and the sub-Saharan Sudan. It is a vast area, covered mainly by expanses of rocky Hamada stone plateaus 
and less so by ergs, sand seas and gravel plains. But within these areas are huge sand dunes, some of which are over 600 feet, 180 meters high. Much of the Sahara is flat with wadi, dry valleys, dry lakes and salt flats, but it also boasts vast mountain ranges, many volcanic in nature. The one thing that is common to all of the Sahara is the heat. A wide portion suffers from over 4,000 hours of scorching sunlight a year, and some areas see direct sunlight for 98% of daylight hours, giving average air temperatures which exceed 40 degrees centigrade, 104 Fahrenheit, and ground temperatures of over 80 degrees centigrade, that's over 180 degrees Fahrenheit. There are big diurnal temperature changes, but it's a myth that the nights are freezing cold, unless it's a rare event and you happen to be amongst the high mountains. Rainfall is rare, and in the central and eastern parts, practically non-existent. As a consequence, plant life is scarce. There is some animal life, mainly lizards, vipers and insects, which include the large deathstalker scorpion. Its venom contains large amounts of neurotoxin. All in all, it's a pretty inhospitable place, as some have found to their misfortune. It was the 4th of April 1943, and the crew of Lady Be Good picked themselves up from their parachute drop. It was pitch black, not a light visible anywhere, except for the stars above, which filled the sky with a stunning display so intense it could only be seen like that from a few remote places in the world. As they shouted to find each other in the dark, the sound of their aircraft, droning on, flying away from them, slowly faded, until it was as quiet as the grave. Eventually they resorted to firing their weapons and sending signal flares up into the inky blackness to help the crew come together. A few were close enough to find each other easily, and eventually the stragglers came in, but a headcount only revealed eight. They were missing one, John Voraka, the bombardier. They were all surprised to find themselves standing on land. They had thought they had been out over the Mediterranean Sea. It had been their first operational mission, and it hadn't gone well. Lady Be Good was a B-24 Liberator of the U.S. Army Air Corps. She wasn't an appealing lady, as she handled like a long tractor-trailer with 18 flat tyres, and she was considered the ugly sister of the heavy American bombers in the Second World War. However, the Liberator was still a rugged aircraft, and destined to become the most produced American bomber in history. More than 18,000 were built during the war, mainly by the Ford Motor Company. She had her faults, a tendency to catch fire if ditching or crash landing because the high-mounted Davis wing had a habit of breaking away from the fuselage. She was hard to fly in formation and her pilots needed big biceps to wrestle the clumsy controls. 
But the ugly lady had some good redeeming features. A high top speed, good combat range, a decent ceiling, and she carried a good bomb load. When they got airborne that night, the crew of Lady Be Good would have undoubtedly been feeling a bit nervous. They were going into combat for the very first time. Pushing up the throttles of his two Pratt & Whitney twin wasp supercharged radials, Lieutenant Hatton was one of the last to accelerate down the strip at Salouche Airfield, and leaving the lights behind him, they headed out over the Mediterranean Sea, slowly clambering up to their cruising altitude. Salouche had been an Italian Regia Aeronautica base, but had been taken over by the U.S. Army 9th Air Force during the Eastern Desert Campaign. It lay on the North African coast, near Benghazi and Libya. Lady B. Good was part of a 21-ship formation tasked with attacking Naples in Italy, over 700 miles north-northwest of them. The conditions weren't good, with poor visibility and the Sirocco wind that blows up from the Sahara, choking the atmosphere with red dust and covering everything with sand. Other aircraft turned back, their engines running rough as they sucked sand into the intakes, but Lieutenant Hatton, the pilot, carried on towards the target. Strong winds buffeted the Liberator, and they were forced to make numerous course changes to stay close to their track, and as they approached their target, the visibility was still too poor to find it. Downhearted, they jettisoned their bombs into the sea and turned back for Africa. Other liberators in the group had long since come and gone, so Lady Be Good was alone in the sky as they headed back across the Mediterranean. In the poor weather, the one piece of navigation equipment that they could use was their ADF, their Automatic Direction Finder. It was a loop aerial that would accurately indicate the bearing of a radio beacon. With little else to go by, and in unexpectedly strong winds, the navigator was struggling to come up with accurate positions. We are unsure whether the ADF failed, or the navigator just wanted to confirm its readings, but the pilot called Salouche Airstrip, saying that they had a fault, and they asked for bearings to fly. It would be the last call to be heard from Lady Be Good. Some reports say that the airfield refused to answer, believing it to be a Nazi ruse, but a more likely account is found in the official report of Graves' registration, which states, The aircraft flew on a 150-degree course towards Salouche Airfield. The craft radioed for a directional reading from the HFDF station at Benina, which was nearby, and received a reading of 330 degrees from Salouche. The actions of the pilot in flying 440 miles into the desert are indications that the navigator probably took a reciprocal reading off the back of the radial direction loop antenna from a position beyond and south of Salouche, but on course. The pilot flew into the desert thinking he was still over the Mediterranean and on the way home. Despite their colleagues at the airstrip 
Hearing the aircraft overhead and firing flares into the sky to help them, the crew of the Liberator flew clean over their base and onwards over the brutally inhospitable terrain of the Sahara Desert. They were hopelessly lost and running out of fuel when the first engine failed. The crew decided to abandon their aircraft rather than risk a crash landing and they parachuted out over what they believed to be the sea, only to discover that it was a sea of sand. Lady Be Good stubbornly carried on for a further 16 miles before it settled onto the desert and came to a grinding halt. Her fuselage was mainly intact, but it had broken after the wings and cockpit. With no fuel, there was no fire. Even the glass in the cockpit windows was unbroken. Still on board were food rations and water that the crew would soon be in desperate need of, and, more importantly, a usable radio. But they had no idea where their liberator was. The following day, a search and rescue mission was launched from Seleucia Field in an attempt to find them, but they failed to see any trace of the aircraft or its crew. The disappearance of the Lady Be Good became a mystery, one of the many unexplained losses, and the Air Force moved on. There was a war to be fought. Out in the desert, the crew still believed that they must be close to the Mediterranean and had no idea that they were hundreds of miles south, so they decided to set off for the coast. What we know of their walk through the Sahara comes from the co-pilot's diary, Lieutenant Robert Toner, as he described their efforts with sober brevity. Sunday, April 4th, 1943. Naples, things pretty well mixed up. Got lost returning. Out of gas. Jumped. Landed in desert at 2 o'clock in morning. No one badly hurt. Can't find John. All others present. Monday 5th. Start walking northwest. Still no John. A few rations. Half a canteen of water. One cap full per day. Sun fairly warm. Good breeze from northwest. Night very cold. No sleep. Rested and walked. Tuesday 6th. Rested at 11.30, sun very warm. No breeze, spent afternoon in hell. No planes, etc. Rested until 5. Walked and rested all night. 15 minutes on, 5 off. Wednesday, April 7th, 1943. Same routine, everyone getting weak can't get very far. Prayers all the time. Again, afternoon very warm. Hell. Can't sleep. Everyone's sore from ground. Thursday 8th. Hit sand dunes. Very miserable. Good wind, but continuous blowing of sand. Everyone now very weak. Thought Sam and Moore were all done. 
Lamotte's eyes are gone. Everyone else's eyes are bad. Still going northwest. Friday 9th. Shelly, Rip, and Moore separate and try to go for help. Rest of us all very weak. Eyes bad. Not any travel. All want to die. Still very little water. Nights are about 35. Good wind. No shelter. One parachute left. It was on that Friday that the group split up. Some of the crew were close to death, and the majority were too exhausted and dehydrated to carry on. So Ripslinger, the engineer, Shelley and Moore, both gunners, agreed to try to reach help and then return. Survival experts estimate that without proper hydration, the men would probably manage a maximum of 30 miles. But when the group split up, they had already traveled 80. An unbelievable achievement. After the decision, Toner continued to make entries in his diary, a poignant record of his decline towards death. Dehydration is unpleasant in the extreme, and it's remarkable that some of this brave crew were still alive, let alone able to move on. Their bodies would be suffering from fevers, which would only add to the discomfort of the intense heat. Their ability to cool themselves by sweating would stop. Their mouths would dry up, as would their tear ducts. Standing would make them dizzy, and they would be suffering from low blood pressure, rapid heart rates and lethargy, confusion and seizures. Saturday, April 10th, 1943. Still having prayer meetings for help. No sign of anything. A couple of birds. Good wind from north. Really weak now. Can't walk. Pain's all over. Still all want to die. Night's very cold. No sleep. Sunday, 11. Still waiting for help. Still praying. Eyes bad. Lost all our weight. Aching all over. Could make it if we had water. Just enough left to put our tongues to. Have hope for help very soon. No rest. Still same place. The final entry was made on Monday, April the 12th. Written in thick pencil lines. No help yet. Very cold night. The fate of Lady Begood's crew would remain a mystery for more than 15 years until a British oil exploration team spotted the wreckage of the Liberator while conducting an aerial survey of the Sand Sea of Kalanskio. They marked the position. It was confirmed by geologists from British Petroleum, but it took a year before an expedition from the United States Air Force Base at Wheelis in Libya set out to find it. 
there on the side of the aircraft were the hand-painted words, faded in the fierce desert sun, Lady be good. The dryness of the desert had kept the lady in an amazing state of preservation. The coffee in a thermos bottle was still drinkable, and many of the aircraft's 50 caliber machine guns were still in working condition and actually fired by team members. The radio worked, some food and supplies were intact, and the log of navigator Lieutenant Hayes was found with his final entry posted over Naples. There were no signs, however, of the crew. Then they discovered several improvised arrow markers at varying distances to the northwest, one made of boots, others made from parachutes weighed down with rocks. But the markers stopped at the edge of the vast, shifting sea of sand of the Kalanskiel. Over the next few years, further searches and accidental discoveries would slowly bring the story of Lady Be Good together, as the bodies of the crew were found. The personal diary, which revealed details of their desert trek and suffering, was discovered in the pocket of the co-pilot. They shared one canteen of water for eight days, left behind clothing articles, May West life vests, footwear, parachute material and other items to mark their path and came to pause about 81 miles north of Lady Be Good. Five remained while three others continued north in search of help. Staff Sergeant Guy Shelley's remains were discovered 24 miles north of the recovered five bodies. Finally, the remarkable flight engineer Harold Ripslinger's remains were found 27 miles north of Shelley's body. Ripslinger had walked 200 miles from the crash site before the desert took his life. The one crew member not accounted for, that of bombardier John Borevka, had died when his parachute failed to open after bailing out. Only one body was never found. The remains of Staff Sergeant Vernon Moore. Had the crew journeyed south to find the crash site, Lady Be Good would have been there for them with provisions, supplies, and a working radio to call for help. Had they had maps of North Africa and managed to locate their position, still further, but within walking distance, there was a life-giving oasis waiting for them. Wow, that <clears throat> that gives me goosebumps. Just listen. I've, that's the third time that I've listened to the uh, the plain tale, and so, so such a nice job, Nick. But so sad. And oh, it is. It's such a remarkable story of, of perseverance, strength. Uh, strength of will, uh, strength of faith that they would be found, uh, all sadly to nothing. But uh, you have to admire them for the efforts they made. So much irony in it. Their first mission. Yeah. And uh, yeah, a, uh, a rookie navigator, well, a rookie crew, but mm-hmm. uh, navigator who probably, uh, you know, wasn't doing a brilliant job because he didn't have much experience. Uh, Miss uh, reading the ADF uh, and then not realizing that they'd already gone over their base, plowing on for hundreds of miles into the desert. 
and then uh, the decision to try and walk rather than stay with their uh, crashed aircraft had they been able to find it it wouldn't have been too hard i wouldn't have thought but yeah yeah uh yeah some difficult decisions in our hindsight now we know the story we want to shout at them say yeah I should have turned around and gone to that airplane you might have still been alive now and mm-hmm. the uh, description in the diary um was so so amazing to me like the, the, the fact that you know, people's eyes are going, you know, you, when you, you don't think about the sand, that blowing sand and what kind of damage it's doing to your physical, uh, body. Oh, absolutely. Not being able to produce tears anymore. Your eyeballs drying out, your mouth drying out and cracking all that skin and, you mm-hmm. know, splitting and not being able to kill yourself through sweating anymore. It's, uh, it must've been just awful yet. He, uh, Tona who wrote that, uh, kept it very matter of fact. He he didn't try and, you know, he wasn't self pitying at all, was he? He just mm. wrote the facts down, uh, I guess, in the hope that someone might find it. But he he didn't resort to um, trying to uh, um, you know cry out in the words he wrote. He just wrote down yeah. what was happening. Not embellishing, you know, just keeping it straight to the yeah. facts and. Uh, yeah. I was amazed at the, you know, you said the survival expert saying, you know, with, with, without hydration, you know, making it, what did, what did he say? 20 miles, 30 miles, 30, miles, 30 yeah. Yeah. and uh, that one guy made it over 200. Yeah. And the last sort of 40 or 50 miles he did without any water because the water was, I think I, I, I gather from trying to read mm-hmm. that they, the water was left with the five uh, and the other three tried to just struggle on without what little water there was, but I think they were generally out. Wow. Their endurance was amazing. They must have thought they were closer to something than they were to to strike out like that. I guess they don't really have a whole lot of choice in the situation, but I would think that they would have had to at least believed that there was something within striking distance. I think because they thought they were initially over the Mediterranean, they uh, they thought they can't have gone far inland. Right. We thought we we're over the sea and we're over land. Must but be close. We'll just walk towards the coast and yeah. we'll find someone. Yeah. Hit the coast and then like just travel along the coast and eventually we'll find civilization. Yeah. Exactly right. Now there's a there's a tragic story I know of an American crew who did a similar sort of thing in Australia on the north coast. Uh and they hit the coast, but they turned the wrong way. Oh. Uh, and uh, it was one of those things, what they should have done, and it's very easy to say, they should have uh, walked slightly, um, not directly towards where they wanted to go, but offered an angle so that when they hit the coast, they knew which way to turn. But when they hit the coast and they couldn't see the city of Darwin, they went, ah, well, we better turn. Well, which way should we turn? And in fact, they argued about it, so they split up. Uh, and in fact, uh, they, the, even the ones that walk in the right direction, uh, are the very few survived. They were eventually found by some aboriginals who saved them. Sorry. But anyway, again, my thanks to Greg. He, I think his telling, uh, or his reading of that diary just makes that story. It, 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 really good job. Thank you. Not only that, but the, uh, the way that you put the music together and how you, you know, made the music stop at the last entry of the diary. It's just like, oh, wow. Very powerful. Well, very kind. Yeah. Yeah. You have a talent, sir. You have a yeah, talent. Yeah, it's ever so kind of you. 
All right. Well, let's keep on moving here. Um, haven't been making a big dent in our feedback on this episode, but we're going to keep trudging along and at least knock out a few more. Uh, item four, JJ writes. Uh, he's a JJ Pittsburgh. I was on one of my rideshare driving road trips for the holiday weekend. Sometimes I take a little getaway and drive some rideshare in a different city for some new scenery. I usually meet up with friends, but no one was around this time. I was feeling lonely on this particular trip and needed to start catching up on APG episodes, so I had it on in the car while I was working. It cheered me up because I felt like the APG crew was tagging along as I picked up passengers on this particular trip in Cleveland. Since I've met most of you in person, I feel like part of the APG family. Just wanted to let you know, let yins know. Yins. <laughs> you are all approved. That's a Pittsburgh West, thing, right? Western Pennsylvania. Yeah. yeah. Let all yins know you're all appreciated. Thank you again, JJ uh, Pittsburgh. Oh. Oh, very nice. Well, very we nice. are. Uh, you are part of our family. You are absolutely. Yeah. I hope yeah, your but, passengers enjoyed. Um, yeah, what the heck is this guy listening? Really? To? What's that crap on the radio? <laughs> Turn it off. Yeah. yeah, you're part of our family. Just don't expect to be in my will. <laughs> JJ, the most important thing I hope you did was sing for your passengers because yes. I'll tell you what, you do know how to sing in that time. I, I will never forget when we're in Nashville, and in Nashville, he was on stage with a Nashville local act and he was singing. It was absolutely. It was just amazing to see him get up there and do that. They were really? doubting him. He got up there and the, he brought down the entire room. Wow, yeah, he very really talented. did. It was amazing. I have not heard JJ sing, so I oh, look you forward should. to you uh, should. He is that. JJ. You are very, very good. Excellent. Thanks, JJ. Item five. Uh, George. This is George Nollie, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Who is the host of a fantastic podcast in its own right, Ready for Takeoff podcast. He says, two items. Your description of wind shear equipment was really excellent. You brought the episode up to well above the 50% level. Yay! That's what I'm shooting for. Uh, we don't need yeah. no stinking Miami Rick. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say it was up to that level. But, okay, thank you. I'll take the compliment. And uh, number two, Captain Nick's plain tales about John Boyd was really excellent. My friend and classmate, Ray Leopold, whom Nick mentioned, was a close friend, an acolyte of Boyd. Ray is famous in his own right as the inventor of Iridium satellite telephone systems. He also came very close to becoming the first pilot to fly a balloon across the Atlantic. Ross Perot was willing to bankroll the project, but yet, but another aviator beat Ray to the flight. And uh, Ray was a guest on my podcast, and it's really a compelling episode. Yeah. Um, great interviews that George has on his Ready for Takeoff podcast. And this one has a link to uh, the uh, uh, gentleman he's speaking of, Ray Leopold. And uh, we'll have that link in the show notes. Now, I'm going to be a bit controversial here are you uh, there's a person riding in a balloon actually deserve the title pilot because like aren't you'll you have really... to bring it up with Gra um grant, grant. Yes. Uh, yeah aren't you really the a because they actually define well, I know grant, being a balloon pilot grant grant yeah. nah grant I mean, you're just a passenger i mean you can't <laughs> you can go you can go up or you can go down no I mean, you you have to have a pilot certificate to be able to yeah fly yeah i know technically dana i'm talking about um, philosophically, 
because uh, like you, that's it you can you can go up a bit or down a bit and that's it but the rest of the flight you're just a passenger so uh, no you're not I you you you're, out there please send you're, your you're more a passenger than a pilot that's for sure you're using your aviation knowledge to understand how the wind patterns are and to be able to navigate that balloon. Yeah, blah, 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 blah. Send your feedback to <laughs> old curmudgeon at certificate. You actually have to have a certificate from the FAA to operate a drone. Grant, we're expecting some feedback from you, man. <laughs> Yeah, I'm just going to message him directly so he can be sure <laughs> yeah. to listen to this. Yeah. Liz, send me the timestamp on this one. <laughs> Speaking of Grant, I'm going to skip over to uh, item number 12. Hi there. How's it going, Post Oshkosh? Sorry for the lack of contact since then, but it's been pretty hectic back here with work and travel, plus a few beers, of course. It was great mm-hmm. to catch up with all of you at Oshkosh and finally meet in person, except Captain Nick. <laughs> I'm just going to add that in there Who for now. Who is now my ex-friend. Yeah. As mentioned, Steve and I are back with a new podcast that we are – oh, that was the title of the email. Our new podcast is officially live. As Steve and I are back with a new podcast that we're producing with our partners in avi- at Aviation Trader. And then it's aviationtrader.com.au. The new show is called Airwaves by Aviation Trader, and they've started releasing episodes. The show's webpage is located inside Aviation Trader's premium section, which is free to join and gives access to additional info supporting episodes and blog posts. The show is already out on Spotify and Pocket Casts and should be on iTunes soon enough. I did check, and I think it is on iTunes. But, of course, you can subscribe to the RSS feed via, and then he gives us the RSS feed URL. Please feel free to share the news with those you might think be interested in listening. We don't have, oh, I shouldn't have mentioned it on this show then. Huh. Okay. No, just kidding. (laughs) Everybody listening to this show would be very interested in this show as well. Um, We don't have editorial control, so it's not entirely like playing crazy down under was, but we're going to have lots of interesting people on and are looking forward to seeing how it develops. Thanks again for the opportunity to catch up and hang out uh, in around all the running about the place we were all doing at various various definitions of running. Yeah. Uh, Steph's definition of running is different from Nick and Dana and my definition of running. Very much so. (laughs) It's all movement. I'm running right now. Can't you tell? (laughs) I'm running in my head. Yeah, it's exactly what I'm thinking. Uh, uh, Again, that's Grant McCarran, producer, Southern Skies Online Media, and also now host of the Airwaves podcast by Aviation Trader. And all that info will be in the show notes. Thanks, Grant. Very cool. And we do apologize for Nick's comments about balloon pilots. Preemptively speaking. <laughs> it's true, though. All true. <laughs> Not going to say anything. <laughs> Item Moving six. On. Andrew, uh, let's see, he says the Nautilus Niku expedition follow up. Let me try it again. Nico Maroro. Roro. <laughs> Roro. <laughs> Nico Maroro. Yeah. It's really not easy. It no, just it doesn't roll off the tongue at all. No, it does, does it? not. Hey, I'll just a follow up on the results of the Nautilus expedition searching for Earhart's Lockheed Electra. Sadly, as and as we expected, nothing found, save for a tiny piece of metal quoted from the attached MSN article. It talks about them finding a um, thin piece of metal 
and it turned out it wasn't it was a black fragment it wasn't aluminum so it couldn't have come from Earhart's Lockheed Electra 10E the silver sheet was more promising especially since it appeared to have rivet holes it sure looked like aluminum underwater said Megan Lubetkin a member of the Nautilus's science crew Ballard picked up the piece it's not her plane it bends too much yeah baked bean can that's what it was Probably. How did that get there? Yeah, weird. <laughs> All the way from Boston. Yes. All right. Floated on the ocean tides. And then he gives us a link to the entire article. Uh, the expedition continues on to do various surveying and mapping around Howland Island and surrounding area, but clearly the type and or the hype and generation for public interest was centered around the possibility or the possible discovery of the downed aircraft. To conclude, if y'all are still planning a meetup live show in the South Pacific. I'll bring the drinks. <laughs> I'm sure the probably rum I've drinks, never right? Tried Woman should be the IPA. <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be good. Sounds sounds do you, delicious. Do you drink out of a coconut? Yeah. Maybe mm. a little pineapple slice on the. Yeah, there you go. A little, little umbrella. Umbrella. Does, that, umbrella. does that mean you get good hydration? Are we really yes, talking about pina coladas? Either uh, way, I'm in. I like pina coladas. I have a word for that, but I'm not going to say it on air. All righty. Uh, is that what IPA stands for? Indian. Pina colada ale? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> uh, let's see. I'm going to skip seven. Um, eight. Morgan. I just started listening to the podcast about a year ago, and this is my first time writing it. Well, what took you so long, Morgan? Ooh. Oh, I love this feedback, actually. A Thank few you, weeks Morgan, ago. For yeah. Now, uh, a few weeks ago now, I was doing my 300 nautical mile cross country. Was that for your private certificate? I think that's actually for commercial. Okay. Dana, help me out. 300 nautical miles? seems like a long way. It's a long way. Yeah, I, think commercial. Commercial. I, think it's, yeah, I actually commercial. think it's more than 250, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Okay. There's, uh, it might even be instrument. What anyway. Did okay. you get lost and it's, fly it's 50 not miles private too far? It's got to be it's instrument because it uh, can't be a commercial because I got my commercial single engine and I didn't have to do a cross country. You do have to do a cross country. You do have commercial. to. Absolutely, oh, you have to. Well, then how did I you, get my commercial I, without I doing you got <laughs> alleviation for all their air force or your air force flying? Yeah, uh, you may have already done that. Might be that the that military yeah. military equivalency. But anyway, yeah, you okay. Got, we digress. You got around the world a few times already. Yeah, true. We digress. Um, so anyway, uh, he. Uh, I'll start again. A few weeks ago, now I was doing my 300 nautical mile cross country and was on my my final leg home having just been told to switch to en route after leaving Vancouver Terminal. It was quiet, not a soul flying in the area. For a good reason, there was a nice big storm. Oh, for a good reason. There was a nice big storm moving in, and we were debating switching to an alternate airport to spend the night. All of a sudden, we heard the radio key on and checked to see if we were transmitting and realized we weren't, and our G430, our active comm, wasn't showing any sign that someone was on the en route freak. And that's when we heard it, quote, F you, Delta. <laughs> and then another, hey, now, guys, be nice. It went quiet for a few seconds, then followed by around three minutes of pilots making cat noises. We were monitoring 121.5. So our best guess is it was some bored airline pilots. So to sum it up, is that a normal thing? Have you ever heard anything like that? Mm, yeah. The yeah. cat noises anyway. Have Chewbacca. you ever done anything like that? No. <laughs> Thanks for all the amazing shows, Morgan. You know, most of us, especially those of us here on the, uh, what's gone on with my 
background, I guess it finally decided to give up. Anyway, there you go. Well, while you're fixing that, I looked it up. 61.129 Aeronautical Experience Commercial Engine uh, for Commercial Pilot. Uh, subsection 4I, one cross country flight of not less than 300 nautical miles. Total distance. Ah, so landings at a minimum of three points, which are one in straight line distance of at least 250 nautical miles from the original departure point. However, if this requirement is being met in Hawaii, mm-hmm. the longest segment only need to be straight line distance 150 nautical miles. So, anyways, we have to be above 50%. So, we are now above 50%. Well, thank go. God for that. Well, to sum, up, to sum up, is that a normal thing? Um, it's well known that, unfortunately, Guard, 121.5. Guard. Guard is um, somewhat abused by people who are bored or I don't know why. I have very low mental uh, capacity. They're, they're juveniles. They are. I'm not sure why cat noises and Chewbacca sounds are so, uh, are the chosen noises to make? Lots of meowing. And, a lot of meowing yeah. going on. And and these guys and possibly gals, it sounds mostly like guys to me, but who, you know, I can't tell the difference when they're doing meowing sounds, um, are there to annoy people who get easily annoyed when somebody is abusing the uh, frequency. And what, the, what I want to say to those who just like immediately jump on and start yelling at these people is just don't do it. Just Exactly. Wow, what are you saying there? Oh, it's just doing a guard noise. I mean, that's all. Okay. So when you hear that, you'll know exactly who transmitted it. <laughs> yeah, it, I, so, I actually never do any of those. I hope not. It, it annoys but, the hell out of me. So to be honest with you. I'm just, I'm just mimicking guard noises. Okay. And there, are, and so the the ones that are doing that know that there are a certain subset of people that are on the frequency that will get so upset by it. Thank you. That uh, they'll they'll start yelling at these people, but what they don't realize it's just the same thing. Like right now, we have this live chat room. Fortunately, we don't have any trolls in the chat room because we do this unlisted. After we've uh, done the recording, then we uh, I release it as a public video. But if you do it as a public live, and we've experienced this, it's been a while now since we've experienced this. But people come on and they go, "Oh, what's this?" And then they just start making all kinds of rude comments and everything else. And they are doing it to get the reaction from the people that are not tolerant of it. And so the best advice for me is that if you're out there and you're one of those people that are spring loaded to get on guard and go, ah, let's be professional, get off the guard, you're on guard, you know, they know they're on guard and they are doing it to upset you. So don't say anything. And also if someone has given their, you know, like passenger briefing or queued up or keyed up the mic to read back instructions mm-hmm. and they're on guard by accident, you don't have to shout out. You're on guard. Like it's just it's just stupid. They'll under, They'll figure it out. Same thing with the guys that are calling uh, ops. We, Dana and I hear this. Or you probably do hear it too if you're listening to guard um, stuff. They'll mm-hmm. say, you know, Charlotte ops. Uh, this is you know whatever flight, and and then somebody will come. Okay, go ahead. You know, yeah. and and I've even heard cases in Atlanta. Somebody's on guard, and it, it's not uncommon to hear somebody. They just forget to flip the switch. And they think they're on the ramp frequency, and they'll say, we're on the south side for gate B14. 
And some idiot will come on and go, okay, take the right side into the gate. And I'm thinking, that is more than just stupid. That is dangerous. You were reading my mind because that's exactly what I was thinking. How That's like my number one pet peeve. You are actually giving an official clearance mm-hmm. when you're really not representing the actual frequency. And the person on the other side that actually that transmitted doesn't really realize that right so now you're really hosing that person over that's that's just not good yeah exactly. i would venture to say that's highly illegal i would oh, yeah. say so too absolutely yeah. you could probably go to jail for that you know i was uh, one of the latest things i heard was so pleased to hear um somebody was fooling around on guard and then this voice gets on there and says hey guys listen up i'm an air traffic controller we have guard by regulation on an overhead speaker in every single approach facility and center facility and you are making it dangerous for us because we all we hear is your crap so cut it out and then for the first time in my life i was amazed that nobody said a thing for i mean it was completely silent i'm thinking thank goodness Uh, yeah because Uh, people aren't thinking about the fact that as you said they have these speakers that are that are set to monitor guard frequency because if somebody's declaring an emergency, they need to know that, and uh, it's just uh, it's hard to do your job uh, correctly and and professionally when you're listening to idiots making cat sounds and other sounds like Dana just showed us. Uh, let's go ahead and play this audio feedback from Nick Camacho. Probably go over the three hour point, but um, anyway. That's okay. He uh, sent in a couple of pieces of feedback. We're going to save the second, I mean, the second couple of audio feedbacks, and we're going to save the second one for another show. But here we go. This is, uh, you'll remember that uh, Nick was, uh, well, here, let me read what he said. I've attached two pieces of audio feedback. One is a brief recap of our trip over to Europe in the C-47, Betsy's Biscuit Bomber. And the other is my recollection of a cool flying experience with my dad and brother in Europe. So let's play the first one, the D-Day recap. Hey, Captain Jeff and the rest of the APG crew. This is Nick from the Air Capital. Now that I've had a couple of months to uh, recover and reflect on our trip over to Europe in the C-47, I thought I'd give you a brief summary of what we were able to accomplish. As many of you know, I was fortunate enough to be a part of the crew of Betsy's Biscuit Bomber, a C-47 based in Paso Robles, California, that flew over to Europe this summer to commemorate the 75th anniversary of the D-Day invasions as well as the 70th anniversary of the Berlin Airlift. Our airplane traveled across the country in early May uh, from Paso Robles to the East Coast. Uh, While we were on the East Coast, we were able to take part in some pretty cool functions before we even left the country. We were involved in a uh, five-ship flyover of the Pentagon and the Arlington National Cemetery flying uh, down the Potomac. We were also able to um, be a part of a nine-ship C-47 flyover of um, the Hudson River and the Statue of Liberty. That was a pretty cool experience as well. Uh, We did a lot of formation training, and we did survival training in Connecticut uh, before the big fleet departed. And then towards the end of May, uh, the D-Day squadron, the group that we were part of, Across the Atlantic Ocean, it was a total of 15 U.S.-based C-47s and DC-3s that flew from uh, Oxford, Connecticut, through Canada, Greenland, 
Iceland, and Scotland before arriving in Duxford. Uh, we were based in Duxford for, uh, all told, about a, a little over a week. We did some maintenance in Duxford. We did some flying in Duxford, uh, as uh, was so wonderfully chronicled by uh, Captain Nick. We appreciate him taking some time to come out and chat with us and see us. Uh, and then we moved on to France, uh, where we did a number of uh, reenactor paratrooper drops. Our airplane was part of the uh, 14 airplane formation flight over the cemetery in Presidents Trump and Macron. Uh, all told, I think we dropped over 100 uh, reenactor paratroopers over France, uh, over the historical drop zones of D-Day. And these were guys that were dressed up in uh, period-specific uniforms, uh, jumping static line rigs, so they're jumping off the anchor line of the airplane, and then uh, using round canopy parachutes. They're a l- they say that they're slightly more steerable than what they were actually using in World War II. Uh, so they couldn't steer to their landing zone, but they could at least orient themselves the direction that they wanted to land. Uh, after that, we went to Germany. We, uh, we had an air show at the Wiesbaden Army Air Base in Germany. And this air show was uh, solely our group of uh, DC-3s and C-47s. At the, uh, at the apex of our group size... In uh, Duxford, in Cannes, France, it was about it was 25 airplanes, the 15 U.S. airplanes, plus 10 European-based airplanes. Uh, in Germany, we were probably down to about 20 airplanes, um, but still, they they put on a little open house um, with just our uh, DC-3s and C-47s, and uh, we were able to uh, entertain over 40,000 U.S. servicemen, women their families, and the local community that supports them in the airbase. So that was a pretty cool experience. Uh, we were also, uh, we also went to Fosberg and then uh, flew around Germany, or flew around Berlin, I'm sorry. And we were uh, fortunate enough to be able to transport uh, Colonel Gail Halverson, who was the original candy bomber, um, from Fosberg to Berlin. So we were able to do a lot of really cool stuff. Uh, the trip from uh, wheels up to wheels down in Paso Robles was two months and four days. We flew the airplane for 150 hours. During that time, we burned over 12,000 gallons of 100 low lead avgas. Uh, Between oil changes and uh, flight consumption, we also used over 200 gallons of uh, 120 weight aircraft engine oil. We performed flight operations on seven in seven countries. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the United States, Canada, Greenland, Iceland, uh, the United Kingdom, France, and Germany. And uh, the best part of the trip is that uh, all 15 of our airplanes made it over, were able to perform in front of the European uh, fans who were incredibly excited to see them, and all 15 airplanes um, made it back successfully. So, uh, I would not say it went off without a hitch. There are a few minor issues. Um, we had a few small maintenance issues on our airplane, very small, uh, considering everything that we accomplished. Uh, there were a couple of logistical and organizational issues we had to work through, but overall we were able to accomplish everything we set out to do. Uh, everybody had fun. Everyone was safe and we got to show our airplane to a whole entire, uh, new continent of people who 
uh, haven't had the opportunity to see it and may never again. So it was a great experience. Thanks for uh, helping me share our story. Thanks for all the support. And uh, like I mentioned before, also thanks to Captain Nick for um, including us in his plain tales that were so well done. That's all I got for now. We'll talk to you guys again soon. Bye. Thanks, Nick, uh, for your audio feedback. And as I said, the second one will play on next on the next show. And um, wow, that was an amazingly successful trip. Um, lots of fuel burned, that's for sure. Oh, it was. I mean, uh, that's that's a pretty adventurous journey uh, over there from the states up through. Canada, Greenland, Iceland, North Scotland. Um, so, you know, that's uh, hats off to them all. And they're, they're not just flying uh, any other aircraft. They're, they're flying a piece of history uh, that is uh, aged and needs to be treated with care uh, and wasn't ever going to be easy to fly. I mean, it's not the, the uh, it's, it's, oh, heaven's sakes, World War II era aircraft. It doesn't have anything uh like uh we're used to guys so that requires real real piloting skills to do that well done guys yes very much so well done and uh thank you nick for helping helping them chronicle it oh that was my pleasure so uh, anything i can do to help in the future more than happy those All photos right. are wonderful so i don't know if Jeff is going to put them in the show notes this time around, but if not, go back and watch the. Uh, We've already done so. I think yeah, they're all in so, show notes. They're here again in this uh, in this video if you've not seen them before. So. Yeah. There you go. And with that, I think it now is time for us to end this episode, and we're going to first point you over to the airlinepilotguy.com website. Uh, Arash Mahin is our. Uh, he manages that for us, and there is a lot of stuff there. You can see uh, information about the crew and the uh, community and the coffee fund and plane tales. Uh, what else? Uh, the APG library. Uh, our librarian Tiffany takes care of that. And we have merchandise, including coffee mugs, and so much more. So head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com where you can find uh, find out about that and uh, we do have apps apparently you can't get the android version anymore but we'll see what we can do about that but there is still an ios version if you have an ios device and just look on the apple app store for that and uh, we're also on the social meds you can head over to Twitter and using the handle at APG crew, you can interact with us there. Find all of our individual Twitter information pinned to the top of that page. You can also head over to facebook.com slash airline pilot guy and interact with the community members there, all of us, and lots of good information being shared on both platforms. And if you really want to delve deep into the APG community, you can uh, hear a little bit more about Slack now from Hello. Yeah, hello. Um, hello. It's, it's time. Sorry, Jeff. I might have used all your skin lotion. Dang it. <laughs> APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, 
Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at AirlinePilotGuy.com or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1 and see you in Slack. Thank you, Hillel. And a big shout out and thank you to our producer, Liz in Toronto. Liz Piper, thank you very much for everything hey, you do. Thank you, Liz. <laughs> And thank you to all of you uh, that show up on these live episodes, these live, re- live recordings every week. Uh, You're welcome. Oh, sorry. Uh, I'm so not sorry. talking. <laughs> and, and thank you to my co-hosts that show up every week, uh, most of the time, to uh, uh, be help me do this. <laughs> and uh, with that, um, I guess that's it. We'll see you next week. Wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, folks. Sayonara, arigato. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Good day. a good good pilot till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats airline pilot guy I fly America oh airline pilot guy he can't land in heavy fall I got no friends cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, not a guy I fly over